Do I suspect these drifters know each other are nets? Is the way she blasts it? I really enjoyed that. I'm really glad that this is how we chose to spend our 250th episode. Thought it went well. I, I did. I mean, and it only only ran what about two and a half, three hours. I think it's 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 fine. What else could you really kind of hope for? Um, and yeah, you know, listeners. Um, next week. I mean, we we talked about it earlier. There's a good chance that like James Gunn's Suicide Squad came in, and we did a bonus episode. In which case, next week we'll take a week off, and we back the week after with Billie Jean Doheny joining us to celebrate the annual holiday that is Batman Day, discussing Catwoman, the 2004 film starring Razzie winner Hal Berry. Uh, but if we did not cover James Gunn's Suicide Squad, if it did not make it in, next week it'll just be myself and Andrew talking about Oliver Stone's Platoon. Uh, really, really looking forward to that. Uh, in terms of recommendations from myself, um, well, I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like Nolan's earlier filmography kind of earlier in this podcast. And, and I really think I'd like to single out uh, Final Crisis, which is Grant Morrison's uh, DC Comics crossover, uh, which begins with a premise that is arguably quite similar to Tenet, which is uh, a murder mystery where the bullet travels back in time. So the climax of the story, uh, no spoilers, involves the firing of the gun that incites the story that leads to the firing of the gun, which I, I quite enjoy. Uh, it's a bit of a head scratcher. It was very controversial when it was released and therefore probably a good fit uh, in terms of if you enjoy Tenet, you'll enjoy it. Um, and, I mean, we have possibly already covered this in a in a bonus episode because it came into the 250, but if we haven't, uh, James Gunn's Suicide Squad is, for me, the best blockbuster of the year so far. Um, we've talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about things like directorial control, distinctive vision, the idea of, like, auteurs versus the studio system. And, you know, I mean, Gunn is not as as kind of like rigid a stylist as Nolan. He doesn't have as distinct an identity, I would argue. But his blockbusters still at least feel distinctively his own. And I found, after a summer that has been largely disappointing, that uh, The Suicide Squad was a breath of fresh air. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, but before we wrap up, Andrew, uh, what would you recommend for listeners? What are you enjoying at the moment? What would give them pleasure? Well, let's see. Um, I have uh, finished MODOK. I, th- I, oh, I, I think we, it's been mentioned before, but yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and and uh, so, so did uh, Petrina, my fiance, because we were also watching Loki ah. and we were kind of underwhelmed by that, I have to say. Like, I've, I, I haven't enjoyed a lot of the Marvel stuff. But anyway, on to things that I do enjoy. Um, the um, I'm I'm going to re- be be repeating a few things that are that are that are that I've said before, but um, the Night Manager. Um, it it with with um Elizabeth Debicki from um from this kind of um yeah I think uh, you mentioned earlier like your your opinion about how they relate to one another so it's it's a it's a good exactly organic, it's not an original yeah. position yeah. <laughs> like but, <laughs> but um and uh, Nolan wise um I'll give Interstellar um I I imagine if I went to watch it again I would <laughs> I would like it even more. <laughs> Or, or maybe it has. Maybe at some point it has an effect that you like it less. Maybe it hits <laughs> that Princess Mononoke barrier where you have to yeah, watch it yeah. an even number of times. Um, perfect. All right then. So before we wrap up, just any other thoughts? Anything you want to say before we close up? I mean, um, I think in terms of like inappropriate smoking, I guess the fact that Sator doesn't realize that fire works differently when you are tenanted, when you are uh, inverted. Yeah, and he 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 uses a cigarette lighter. Yeah. And then in 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 terms of um, food waste, I do like um, Robert Pattinson's approach. Yeah, it's like uh, where he's kidnapped. Uh, the security the, the staff, don't, staff, don't yeah. let it go cold. Yeah. Um. However, 
um, the protagonist um, uh, and and Simpsons, I guess, restaurant in um, on the Strand, which is I, I imagine what that is meant to be. They refuse to 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 box up his his lunch, and he doesn't stay for lunch. Um, the like the the it's it it's 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 a disappointing moment. I know. Well, I mean, I, I we mentioned earlier in the podcast we saw that together. I do remember you laughing uh, at the moment where he asked them to box it up, where you were like, "Yes, I am finally on side <laughs> with a protagonist." You know, people say Nolan's protagonist can be emotionally distant and kind of intellectually like obtuse, but finally, there's a hero that I can kind and of. And he asked for, for hot sauce, which is a, <laughs> like a very kind of me move. Yeah, um, and and again, I think we we mentioned that kind of action sequence earlier on, but yeah, the, the kitchen fight sequence is re- I really love that sequence as well um quick trivia there actually before we wrap up i just want to say uh that's jeremy theobald plays the um plays the serving staff member at the restaurant on the strand that you mentioned so he is the lead actor in nolan's first film following um and when we eventually talk about batman begins he has this kind of a small cameo in that as well so it's kind of nolan bringing back not just michael kane in that sequence but also like one of the earliest actors uh, with which he worked i also interviewed him a couple of years ago he's a very very nice man um i would shout out um yeah and then also just before we wrap up i don't know actually i'm trying to think in terms of, of something that i kind of haven't mentioned already that i really enjoyed oh what i noticed this time around uh, that i hadn't noticed on previous rewatches pull-ups vitally important to understanding tenet i would argue and not a nolan um <laughs> like like we mentioned kind of suits and that sort of thing yeah. and uh, you know kind of um stereotypes yeah, pull- like archetypes kind of like things you associate with will now be something <laughs> that is in every tenant movie or any yeah well i mean like the thing i realized this time around is that pull up is itself a palindrome much like tenant Huh? Ah. I, I was quite and the fact that like the two sequences where you see the protagonist doing like unsolicited pull-ups um there it's implied in the film that it's happening at the same time in the same place so you're seeing the boat travel by the windmills at the time when he would be inside the windmills so he is doing pull-ups on the boat while also another version of him is doing pull-ups inside the windmill as well i thought that was a very clever structural uh, thing that i literally only picked up that's how you 2x your games <laughs> like, like doing same exercise forwards and backwards in time yeah, yeah. um when when once once you finish that, go back to the start again. Yeah, just keep looping over as well, uh, which is great. I love that there are things that I still notice uh, in this movie, as we've mentioned, which I've watched like nine times. Uh, and it's like, I know that the things I notice are just like pull-ups, palindrome, oh, question mark. kind of re- re- related to food, but drink. She next to vodka <laughs> <laughs> on, her, on her way off the yacht. Uh, I, know, I know we haven't gotten to, to food um, waste yet. Food waste yet. But you're just kind of like but, laying uh, that down and establishing. Yeah, I mean, before we wrap up, there's really only kind of one more thing I, I want to kind of add. And I guess that it, it's kind of like the weird aftermath of kind of Tenor, the, the legacy of Tenor. Because we talked, you know, we talked earlier on about like its production, its development, the controversial aspects of its release and the way in which it was kind of the initial response to it went. It's kind of interesting to kind of talk about Tenet a year after its release and then kind of just sit with it and watch how the industry has changed. Because like one of the things is that like obviously... Its box office success was not particularly impressive. Um, It ended up, I think, something like the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. And it was a year in which a global pandemic ravaged the industry and shut down cinemas and all that sort of stuff. That's very poor. Yeah. um, Yeah. Only fourth. Uh, Behind two Chinese movies and Bad Boys for Life. Um, Those are the, the, the the three that beat it. But 
you know, after Tenet, you had this whole big debate about like, are theaters viable anymore? Um, if studios can't release movies into cinemas, are they going to go straight to streaming? And you had this whole thing where uh, HBO Max and Warner Brothers in response to Tenet kind of said, what we're going to do in 2021 is we are going to release all of our movies simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters at to, the same time. To the point where, um, like, the, 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 the love affair with um, uh, Nolan and Warner Brothers might, might, might have come to end like Netflix is even sniffing about, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine living in a world where Netflix is like, we want to be in the Christopher Nolan game and it's not a joke. Um, but yeah, like they, I love that like Nolan's really passive aggressive response to finding out that Warners would be releasing all of their movies on HBO Max was, and they're releasing it on HBO Max. And I quote from his statement, the worst streaming service. And I'm like that is a <laughs> that is a man who Dude, just, is he he's a, presumably is he still executive producer on like some of those kind of DC? I um, think he's done after after Zack Snyder's Justice League. I think he's I think that's oh. that's him out basically. So once Snyder's out, he's out. He's not on Suicide Squad or the Suicide Squad, um, which we'll, we'll come back to in a moment. But I do think that like, um, but like it, it's why fast- does he need to executive produce? Um, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Surely Zack Snyder is enough. Yeah, it's <laughs> enough for anybody. He can but, play all of the characters. I, I think <laughs> I think we <laughs> I don't, I'd shoot it with just him and Jared Leto, really. I do love the idea. Like I think I mentioned this on our on our um like Snyder Cut episode, but like apparently when they screened the theatrical cut of Justice League, it was Deborah Snyder and Christopher Nolan were the representatives from the Snyder camp in the Warner Brothers like screening room. Zack Snyder himself didn't go. And apparently when Nolan came out, uh, Zack Snyder asked his wife and, and Nolan what they made of the movie. And Nolan apparently looked him in the eye and said, Zack, you must promise me you must never watch this. Which I kind <laughs> of adore. Um, but uh, yeah, no, but the thing is, though, like one of the things I find interesting is that like that ties into the whole narrative of kind of Nolan, this weird thing we've had where we've had this kind of like pushback against distinctive auteurs and distinctive ideas and kind of like distinctive visions and towards a more an idea that, yeah, cinema should be content in inverted commas, which is something I think we've touched on, you know, recently in this podcast with things like, you know, the, the MCU movies, but even like Demon Slayer, when we talked about Demon Slayer, when we had that thing where it's really just six episodes of a TV show that with, with no context whatsoever released in cinemas and suddenly the biggest movie of the year. And I kind of like that time, I would argue, has vindicated Nolan, which seems fair given how much hard work Nolan has done vindicating time over the past couple of years. Time is like, yeah, I got your back, Chris, on this one. But like the idea that, you know, the HBO Max deal turned out to be such a disaster for Warner's that it apparently was one of the reasons why AT&T said, uh, you know what, we're not really into this producing stuff anymore. We're going to divest ourselves of uh, Warner Brothers, Warner Media. We're going to merge them with Discovery and hope uh, you guys have a much better kind of run of things. Uh, the fact is that like, apparently the guy responsible for the HBO Max deal, uh, Jason Killer, when he found out that Warner Media were being divested from AT&T, he apparently immediately drafted his resignation and began negotiating an exit package. Um, things like the announcement that like Warner Brothers will not be continuing that HBO Max deal going forward as well. And even things like, say, the simultaneous release on uh, Disney Plus of stuff like, say, Black Widow, 
where oh, and and the the um, the jungle Cruise. yeah the the court case oh yeah um, yeah the, which is happening with uh, Scarlett Johansson yeah yeah as well like that sort of thing where you got profit participation as well uh, parents are even aware of that <laughs> <laughs> they they uh, sorry not not that they're like oblivious <laughs> people but they 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 follow these things even less than me um, yeah. But yeah, like, and, and but even the, even the fact that like the you know initial box office for Black Widow was good, they bullishly published their like you know subscription rates for it as well, and then in a second weekend it dropped something like eighty you know seventy eighty percent in terms of its second weekend, and you also had obviously the Johansson deal, and you had things like you know Disney saying oh, we're not going to tell you how many people paid for it to watch it in the second weekend of release. That would be too much information. But the idea that yeah the the pivoting the streaming model that studios were so excited about and so giddy about when the pandemic hit doesn't seem to be working out for them the way that they would have anticipated, which I, you know, I like to think is kind of some sort of vindication for the old fashioned theatrical model. You know, it's something that gives me a little bit of hope when we talk about, you know, because we can keep, we can seem quite kind of like, you know, glum and, and cynical and disappointed when we talk about the future of, of kind of media on this podcast, I think. I mean, when, when we went to see Demon Slayer, it didn't feel like um, cinemas were a kind of a something that's going to kind of be there for a while. It felt like a bit of a ghost town, yeah. um, which is fair. In the middle of this in, pandemic that we're in. in the mid- yeah. Or hopefully not the middle. <laughs> Delta, baby. Delta. In, in the midst. Oh, yeah, in the oh, midst, yeah. That's yeah. fair. Well, de- yeah, Delta is just the, the what is it? The, the, the fourth Greek letter. <laughs> um, Phone me when it's Omega. You know, we wake yeah. up, we're still recording this podcast remotely in 2030, and it turns out to be we're dealing with the Omega variant. Uh, but at least that has cool Charlton Heston zombies, right? Yeah, Andromeda strain. Yeah. <laughs> We've moved past the, the kind of alphabet letters. But no, like, I, I, so I guess, like, that that's my kind of closing thoughts on, on Tenet is that, like, you know, it, it it's interesting that the, the movie has this kind of arc where it initially seemed like it was, the you know, the death knell of theaters and it was initially used as justification for this kind of pivot towards streaming and this pushback against, you know, auteur directors and this weird corporate fandom that we kind of talked about that you see in discussions of it where it's like, man, Nolan's such a pretentious dick. Why can't he be like the poor Disney Corporation, which just gives me content on a regular basis that I stream in my own home? Uh, I kind of like the idea that, you know, maybe that model isn't as viable as it initially appeared like it might be, that it isn't going to be as easy for studios to kind of pivot to that model as they kind of hoped. So, you know, maybe maybe there's room for movies like Tenet going forward. Like maybe... The alternative isn't just a blank corporate void, I guess. That's my kind of closing thoughts on it, or my closing ruminations on it, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I wonder. The, the, um, I guess with with theater releases, the theater has a cost. Yeah. Is on 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 streaming? It just they, goes they, straight they to yeah. It just goes straight yeah, to the studio. Yeah. They can distribute their own kind of, um, and they don't need the 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 infrastructure of the of of the theaters to do it. Yeah. It's basically vertical. We've talked about this before, but it's basically vertical integration, the style of the old studio system where you would have studios that would own entire theater chains. And those theater chains would just pump out the content from like the Westerns where you were making three or four Westerns a week and you just put them in your own theaters and people pay and see them and all that money is yours. The The streaming model is basically just that, but without needing the physical buildings, uh, which is, you know, uh, ideal from a studio perspective. But kind of grim from everybody else's. The the screens were getting kind of um, 
like in in like with in Dublin where 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 we had been, the Savoy had kind of moved from this yeah. kind of um, very impressive screens to something kind of like a home cinema. Yes, uh, have you been? Have you been? Had you been in the reopened Savoy since they knocked some of them? Ones? Yeah, and it was it was it, it felt kind of. Um, prefab or yeah. something you know? well, yeah the weird thing is that like okay just for non-irish listeners i don't imagine you need this context you probably you, you probably well, get it from context but it, it could wasn't... be something that's happening other places yeah. as well yeah. I, I think multiplexes generally yeah kind of versus kind of like the big kind of uh... amphitheater environment yeah no we talked about i think on debang three like how it's happening even in india say but like things like yeah the the savoy one was this gigantic uh, 2000-seater, I think, cinema in Dublin. It was absolutely massive. It was, for my money, the best screen. You go in, you see a movie with a crowd, and it's just exciting. And that was not financially viable, so they knocked it down, and they built some absurd number, I think 12 screens in that space. And you go into them, and, you know, I mean, like, I understand, like, economically, it's not viable to have the big screen anymore. I understand that it's market forces. It's not a like conscious choice on the part of the cinemas. It's just a way of kind of trying to stay afloat and trying to keep the business open. But you go into it, and it's like there are 24 seats in a screen. It is, as Andrew said, like you're in a big sitting room. Yeah, it feels like the the racehorse is no longer kind of um, uh, winning and you're just kind of making glue out of it, <laughs> taking all of the different parts. Just wringing whatever is left of it. Yeah, oh. making like beef burgers <laughs> and, and, and things, yeah. Where, where, where it doesn't, it doesn't kind of, it seems sort of like out of desperation and doesn't make you think that this 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 is something that's going to last you know well i mean like as as we're recording this you have you have that a quote from a matt damon in the telegraph where he's saying like you know cinema as it exists today won't exist for our children which is a very grim idea uh, but i do kind of wonder if that's the case now to be fair like we've talked to this podcast before how change is not inherently good or bad how everything is always constantly changing i mean i would make the point that like yeah. cinema for my grandparents is not the same as it is for us and that's that's okay but yeah, I, I do we, feel a little bit anxious. We've probably like the golden age of cinemas. Probably, um, like we we didn't, we probably didn't get to see. It. Like, like I, I remember where we went to school. There was a cinema there in the thirties. It's like all these railways that are no longer there. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know? it also did have a train station where we went to school. Also had a train station that is no longer yeah. in service as well. Um, this kind of rundown and breakdown of infrastructure. I think that's I, right. I mentioned earlier on that, like when I mentioned this was going to be our 250th episode, and I'm sure it will not be a completely alienating or odd episode for somebody who's just turned it on. Uh, but I did send out on Twitter a request for questions, just if people had anything they wanted to ask us for there. And I figured, like, I, I mentioned one of them earlier, um, but I got I got another one that I, I kind of held on to because I thought we might come back to it towards the end of the episode. But from Will Cooling, and he was asking, um, well, first thing he asked, have either of us watched Space Cop? Um, and what are our thoughts if so? My answer is no, I did not know that it existed until I Googled it, uh, so I have not seen it. Um, so I'm going to throw that out if listeners want to tell me whether I should watch it or not. Um, I'll I'll listen to them. Andrew Space Cop. Space Cop. I believe it's a it's a production from the Red Letter Media team, I think, who are the guys who did that Phantom Menace review, the one that went viral. Uh, that was absolutely massive. I I do not think I've seen this. And oh, it's from twenty sixteen. Oh, okay. But the, the reason why uh, there was a second question in there, which is the one that's actually connected to the discussion we're having. A more serious question, which is the bigger threat to cinema, better TVs or streaming services? So what do we think? Um, 
but it's difficult to kind of separate those like yeah um, they're interconnected there I, th- I think like physical media isn't going to be kind of the for for it's like like with we kind of aficionados like yourselves or the likes of uh, Phil or Jay or, or uh, Ronan or Grace or any of the kind of like um like the guests that we've well, I'd, I'd, um, I, I know some of them at least will be kind of, you know, plumping for the kind of Blu-ray and kind of special edition kind of versions of these things. But I think for most people, it'll just be kind of like, what's easiest? Yeah. Do I have to wait for this? Yeah. Do I have to be around? <laughs> Do I have to be in a particular place at a particular time? Or yeah, can I watch yeah, it when yeah. I choose to? Um, exactly. Can I watch it now? Yeah. Like, <laughs> when I want let's to. just turn on the television and look for something rather than kind of like have to put any planning into it. So um there 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 are there are there is definitely a a a difference it makes but I think as kind of home sim- cinemas become uh, a little bit cheaper. Like I I was watching it. I, a television is an okay size, but I was thinking just the sound I wanted there to be um kind of uh, you know a base kind of like a kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um and you can probably do that if you're kind of like set up and and you're big big I, 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 my neighbors I know, know when I, I watch tennis you know right yeah <laughs> but i don't know at what point like um there there there'll definitely be 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 something that you can get for certain movies from this i suppose that isn't really answering the question i think um it's it's it, it i yeah i i I'd, I'd, I'd agree that the streaming is probably more urgent anyway yeah 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 because because not 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 everybody is going to kind of have the the the, the money to 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 invest in these things plus um there there's something democratic about streaming because people who can't afford it just probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah the moment that something arrives on streaming it's immediately available wherever your yeah, pirates happen yeah happen to yeah. arg um well i mean that's that's the thing it's like i mean we we you know we'll come back to like the warner brothers hbo max deal in a moment um like, i don't want to talk about that before we wrap up but like the things like they announced that they're doing day and date with things like uh dune and things like um the suicide squad and they immediately realized exactly the point that you said which is the moment that you release those on a streaming service like hbo max they will go online in like ultra hd 4k quality and people will just download them and watch them without subscribing or without going to a cinema which is a lose-lose situation so they they did ease up and like the suicide squad was released a week early in territories without hbo max so that they could technically stick to the word of the agreement that it will go day and day on HBO Max uh, in markets where HBO Max exists. Um, and also Dune will be doing something similar as well, where it'll be premiering in late September, but reaching the US in October. So it will have... Like, it's, the same, it's the same issue where they release um, kind of in theaters in different regions at different yeah. times, which doesn't really kind of make any sense in this day and age. Yeah. So like... Because trailers come out on YouTube like kind of months and months before, and I I I remember a few years ago there were there were like people who really wanted to see. I think it was like Black Mass, and it was out in 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 America a long time before it was, and they were just like, "Come on, I'm going to pirate it, please!" <laughs> <laughs> not not me somebody i knew is like why can't i why can't i watch this in theaters that's how i want to watch it i i, I can't wait any longer it's been out for so long there's so many people talking on twitter about it 
Like, I want to be part of this and I can't. You want to be part of the and, mass conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, maybe 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 streaming kind of I don't I don't know does it does it kind of make it make it easier but it 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 maybe makes it more difficult for people to choose the way they get to 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 see something I think from for for so many movies it doesn't matter I think um, like and then and I I think Jay said it before that like and and I'd agree with him that a lot a lot of my kind of exposure to movies was on these tiny like square um boxes which didn't have a remote with snow you, you had to press yeah. <laughs> the, the, the buttons on them yeah and 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 that's the 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 movie the, the movie wasn't that in my head it it it, it expanded you know to fill uh, my imagination i guess um so yeah it did it it um, in some in some ways, it doesn't matter. I mean, it can the cinema can enhance it, but it it's 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 such it, like it, it's it's an incredible luxury. Yeah, it absolutely these, is. I mean, like these large kind of um, buildings, and I I I wonder whether kind of or how sustainable it is, whether they it might just be a thing that there's fewer and fewer of them, but that the 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 ones like like say for example we in 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 Dublin, the kind of um, cine world might just um, be like one of these high volume kind of um, large tentpole cinemas and that other ones just can't compete with it, I guess, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that it'll be the same thing that happened with television. Where television arrived, it was an existential threat during the 40s and the 50s. And we talked about how things like, say, Singing, singing in the Rain is very much about cinema working through its anxieties over the existence of television. And I suspect that you will see an equilibrium happen with streaming. I don't know what exactly that equilibrium will be. Um, I suspect that like things like the Johansson case that we mentioned will mean, and things like the the like weekend drop off on like Black Widow that we mentioned, and things like the fact that I think like and and to Nolan's credit, when he kind of critiqued that, he made the point that like the it's this very stupid cutting off your nose despite your face thing because. As it stands, the current release model for studios is you release in theaters. You take a cut of the big box office in theaters. You delay. You then release on home media and streaming, and you take the cut off that as well. You sell it into um, ancillary media. You you kind of like license it for television, and you earn profit that way in the long term. So you have the big bang of the initial release, and then the long tail off the back. Whereas with streaming... You're you sat- make tenant toys. Yeah, that's merchandise, like scarves. I want tenant scarves. That's what I'm. I feel like that's the right <laughs> aesthetic uh, for the movie to kind of pitch at. But like the the idea, oh. the, the idea that like you have this long tail. Whereas with Black Widow, it's that she like give us twenty dollars up front. I've heard a lot of the um, Nolan Batman toys are very strange. <laughs> Having absolutely no relation to the movies uh, the, in, in which they, uh, which they're supposed yeah. to relate to, yeah. Um, to be fair, I mean, I can understand why you're in the marketing meeting and you're like, so, so the scarecrow, right? D- does he have to wear a suit? Like, can, can we like, <laughs> like he's meant to be a supervillain. Like, we have a whole model here of like gangly long limb stuff. Can we just do something like that? It's like, no suit. He wears a suit. That's what he does. <laughs> What toy does he come with? He comes with a little sack you can put over his head if you want. Um, glasses <laughs> that you can make your little Killian Murphy figure take. It's kind of like on and off to draw attention to his eyes. Um, but yes, I did. I feel like when I was a child, I might have had like uh, uh, the 
a a last action hero uh, villain, which was like Charles oh. Dance. Okay, so, <laughs> like, so not Tom, not Tom Noonan, Charles Dance. The uh... I think it, no, I think it was just like in a suit, and he could change his eyes. <laughs> But like yeah, so the idea is that yeah, with with things like Black Widow, you're making people just pay twenty dollars up front and they own the movie on streaming. That's it. That's the only income you get. So if they want to see it again, they don't have to buy another ticket to see it. They just watch it again at their own convenience. If they are a family of four, instead of paying four tickets in the cinema, they pay twenty dollars and they can all watch it at their own leisure on their own device, all that sort of stuff. So the idea, the question of like whether that eco- that that economy is viable for tent poles as we understand it and things like the Johansson thing where you have big actors who are like we want our cut and how do we negotiate our cut because again like one of the things that Nolan said and again you know we kind of talked about it earlier in the episode the kind of like the parody of Nolan as this detached British man who wears a suit and drinks tea and thinks he's better than everybody else and this weird fixation the internet has with the idea of him rather than who he is but like he made the point talking to NPR when the HBO Max deal was announced that like it's not people like him and Ben Affleck and Scarlett Johansson you need to worry about getting screwed in this. It's people like the below-the-line actors who live off residuals, so people who like appear and say Law & Order and like are still getting checks in the mail from that one episode of Law & Order they did 20 years ago, and it's enough to allow them to continue working two or three days a year. It's people like the electricians, the, the kind of cinematographers, all the people who work on it and have all these like deals in place for television and like screenings and all this sort of stuff, but which don't exist for streaming. Those are the people that you need to worry about. And I I wonder if like when we begin navigating that sort of stuff with like the Johansson lawsuit, rumor has it Emma Stone is possibly looking at suing. Rumor has it, I love that like Emily Blunt, who like just this week is doing like press for Disney with a smile on her face, talking about how great it is that Jungle Cruise is coming to Disney+. Plus. Apparently she is also considering suing. Um, but like that sort of stuff is kind of like once that dust settles, I'm curious whether like streaming remains kind of vital. Um, but I think that, sorry, that kind of like drifting off there, getting away from kind of the movie. Anything else we're talking about? I mean, do we want to talk about like, I, I think we haven't really talked about Cat yet. I think Cat is kind of like the one piece of this movie we haven't discussed yet. So that, let's jump in and talk a little bit because I think you've kind of mentioned before you have kind of feelings about Elizabeth Debicki in this movie and kind of like how the film uses Cat. It was interesting because I I think I said before that the night manager kind of has the the same character, but more kind of fleshed out. Uh, Last night I was watching it with my fiance and she she was saying, oh, she's better in this than than in in the night manager, which which I hadn't really considered. I don't know. Like, it's it's the including my son. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the bit where it's like the entire world will die. Including my son. Shut up about your son. <laughs> and the thing is, well, like we talk about her and the son as well. This, the son kind of, he's like a, um, you know, a Hollywood child that they're, that whose actor parents are trying to hide away from <laughs> <laughs> like the cameras. And it's like, I don't talk about my son. I, I don't develop him as a character. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know, you know you that's know, very private. To me. You know that, but I, I, I okay. we'll come back I like to Max in a moment. We'll come back. Sorry, well, or, or sorry, we've already talked about Max. We'll, we'll, we we talked about. So we won't talk about him in the end, but we'll talk about him a few minutes ago. Sorry. No, but I, I I liked the kind of idea of kind of Dubicki's relationship to kind of Sator and him being 
her kind of link to the future because he's the father of her of her son but that he's also representing the kind of end of the future so it's 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 a strange sort of um well it's like a necessary relationship to create this child but also the um he wants to destroy the world that the child lives in so it's it's um <laughs> the, the 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 idea of um and i don't know if if it's if it's kind of something that was uh, that he was going for or not but i think of like miyazaki movies and sometimes about um uh women trying to kind of um save the world while men destroy them and the idea of 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 kind of war being a very male sort of like Certainly, something that, like 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 um, I think as little boys we 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 play with soldiers. We learn to we, yeah, and we kind of you know we we fantasize about it and all you know video games and this kind of perpetuation of the idea that it's kind of it's the way the world works or it's the way in which you yeah. define your identity or you know that sort of stuff. And just kind of kind of like fighting and aggression, but that 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 that's, um, that it that that she created her son who who is the kind of the the. The future that she is trying to protect with him. I mean, that's that's an interesting thing. With the kind of tension. The tension that exists there. Well, just you know, um, I want to talk a little bit about about Debecky now, and like the thing with Debecky, which I find interesting, is first of all, I love the fact that there's an action sequence that is based entirely around the fact that she's tall. I love the fact that she's so she's like, yeah. like a giraffe, yeah. like like she is she is opening the, <laughs> the the door in the front from like yeah. the back. Yeah, and, and I, 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 it's it's interesting because it's um, I think it's something that they avoid it, it, it kind of emasculating yeah. um, actors by having them. I, I I I think there might be something with like um, well, the, the thing I think somebody has suggested with Tom Cruise yes, before where he stands on box. So the rumor goes, there's there's no photos of it, but there are rumors that how he's framed with female actors to make him seem as tall or taller. That's yeah, yeah. Like a... Was that that's kind of not possible. <laughs> there, <laughs> there are limits to how much the human brain can process that before it becomes uncanny. But no, like, and, and actually, like, I saw old recently the M Night Shyamalan movie. Um, it's not a not a good movie. I kind Is there of... a twist? <laughs> we go to the beach, the beach that makes us old. That is the twist. Yeah, I I found I found that like it's kind of oh I I know what the movie is yeah. in the trailer. This feels why you, why you know, yeah. it, that's not the. That's not what you do with a. I, in an M Night Shyamalan movie, M Night Shyamalan. I do love, by the way, like somebody made the point that look, all beaches make you old. That is just how time works. It's not really a twist, M Night. Um, but um, one of the things that I do um, like about it is that it has Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Sorry. It it does have um, it has Vicky Kreitz from um, Phantom Thread, um, one of her first big roles since then, uh, and it also has her married to uh, Gail. Uh, Garcia, Garcia Bernard. Yeah. And there's a huge height difference between the two. And I absolutely love that Shyamalan, who is a master of framing and composition, like he compares, like he's been compared to Hitchcock, as we talked about on The Sixth Sense. Like whatever his problems as a storyteller, he's very good at getting the shots he wants. So I absolutely love that he's like, no, I'm not going to pretend that these two people are the same height at all. It it is very well, much like Gail is very short. Yes, and Crepes is very tall. And I love that the movie's like, we're not going to pretend these two people are close to the same height. 
Um, no matter, and like, it's great because so much of the rest of the movie is so intensely framed where he'll like show half of a person's face or he'll show their mouth moving or he'll like frame it to the top of their head and the bottom of the chin's cut off, like to make you feel uncanny and disoriented. But I love that even he's like, there are limits to what I can do. Uh, it's like this, <laughs> which I kind of admire, but I do, I do love that like Nolan's like, yeah, she's, she's a tall woman. That is, that is what she is. Uh, let's play into that. Let's have an action scene in which she tries to steer a car with her foot from the back seat. Um, and one of the things I- she she is a standing desk <laughs> as well. <laughs> but I, I I also like one of the criticisms of the movie, and I and look I I get it in terms of like Nolan's filmography. And we talked about like the dead wife, and the joke like the joke is that like Nolan's big twist with Tenet is what if the wife isn't dead yet, but she might be. Uh, which is okay, fine, smart internet. You made the joke, good for you. Uh, the other thing, the thing that I find interesting though is that like you have this big pushback where people are like, "Man, this is is really reductive and sexist." It's like his only female character in this movie is defined solely by her inability to see past her own child, and it. I, I understand where that criticism comes from, and I get that it's a different. Well, yeah, gen- I mean- there we go. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm about to say. Is that. Every Nolan protagonist is defined by their inability to see past their own child. Like that's the entire motivating character trait of Dom uh, in Inception, of Coop in Interstellar. It arguably informs Mr. Dawson in Dunkirk. You could argue that it's there in Alfred in The Dark Knight Rises as well. So I kind of like, I think that the character of Kat is interesting because she's arguably the classic Nolan protagonist here, despite not being the protagonist. I think all those characters, though, kind of have uh, sort of other things. I, I suppose the, the, the like, the Bicky has more than that. She also has her ha- hatred of Sator. Yeah. I think nobody really hates him uh, as, 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 uh, um, uh, like she does. Well, that's it. It feels like, um, everyone else is trying to stop a thing from happening. And that her, she is um, actually invested. Yeah, and that that's what's kind of dangled in front of her, because the the way the way he gets Let's her save in the world. It's like, it's no, uh, I can help you escape your husband. Yeah, yeah, and it's not even kind of save your son. It's like get away from him and betray him. <laughs> Second chance of betrayal. Like uh, take take away his hole from you and destroy him somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean that that's the thing that I actually like I I think is is interesting about the movie is that like we talked a little bit before earlier about how I should really be writing the stuff that we talked about down earlier the stuff that we talked about earlier down so that we actually do talk about it earlier but I I do like that um that, thank you Andrew um, but I I this is a concept that I'm not sure is going to work, but we're committed to it now. Um, but I, I do like that, like for all that, this is a very intellectual and abstract Nolan movie. And like all the complaints, like we talk, we talk like every time we talk about Nolan, we come back to the complaint that he's too academic. He's too intellectual. And I, like, we, you know, we talked earlier about I, whether this movie, I think is. we should be fair to those criticisms as well, yes. because like, like the, I, we, it, it, I, this is this is our kind of I I I think we probably um, let Nolan off the hook. Yes, we do. I I, pre- I put and, my hands and, up and say yes, yes, we do. Yeah, and that that like the 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 Bicky character is uh, quite uh, lightly drawn. Yes. No, like like the, the she is not the only female character in the movie. There's there's Priya as well, and 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 you have uh, Cle- Clemence Poesy who uh, uh, as 
is 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 the most kind of tired um, <laughs> character kind of in a movie like why is the it, it's yeah that uh, i i i i kind of um she i, I suppose she she works underground <laughs> not being exposed to light I, I love that shot of her just wandering up because she's holding her coffee and she's holding her coffee isn't she it's just like this is just a regular day for me which i kind of admire it's like no you you deal with the whole saving the world nonsense i i deal with the fact the coffee machine's not working and explaining this stuff to you that's that's my job i'm done i'm out uh, which I kind of admired. Uh, it's like, yeah, no, I, I work with this drawer full of, uh, was it detritus of a coming war? Um, you know, so I was like, this is just regular nine to five for me. I clock out at about 5.15 every day, scroll on my phone for a little bit, you know. Every once in a while, somebody pops up and I, I have to, like, explain how this stuff works to them. I kind of, I do kind of like that energy to it. But, like, yeah, you're, you're right. We Maybe I do let Nolan off the hook, but I, I kind of, I found myself oddly invested emotionally in Kat. And I think Kat is kind of the, as you point out, she's the only character who gets to do the emotional stuff in the movie. And, again, the... Well, yeah, the, the, the love story isn't kind of um, from from her um, to um, the protagonist. It's, 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 it's between Neil and the protagonist. Uh, but even that is kind of like it's it's soft spoken and it's gentle. You don't almost realize that it's happened until what's happened has happened, so to speak. But like you, you have like her, you know, the thing with her son, the fact that she actually wants to murder Sator, and the fact that like she gets the big thing, which is the big again, the big Nolan protagonist thing, which is the you you do something incredibly reckless and stupid because you can't control your emotions. So things like you know Cobb's recklessness. Um, Kind of like just trying to get back to his kids, and the fact that he doesn't tell not shooting Maul, yeah, and all that, and not yeah. even telling the other people on the team about Maul and all that sort of stuff because he's so focused in on what he's doing. Um, things like you know, Coops, like you know, really like his his attack on Brand, even though Brand is not necessarily wrong, but using that because he wants to get back to his kids quicker, all that sort of stuff. And here you have like the climax of the movie where like Cat is like pointing a gun at Sator and she's she's been told like look you can't shoot him until we know that this thing is taken care of that we've, we've disabled the algorithm that like killing him won't destroy the entire world your job is to kill him when that is done like that is your sole objective here and I love that she's if, like I should I explain like you you can't kill him otherwise your son <laughs> Everyone like, will die, including if, your son. If you shoot him, your son will die. <laughs> including your son. Um, Specifically him. Yeah. Like, just forget about him. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do love that, like, even when that's explained, it's like, no, I can't let him, can't let you die thinking you've won. So, bang, I'm going to shoot you anyway. I kind of like that the movie gives her that emotional space, lets her make that decision, which isn't, you know, and again, we talk about, like, how robotic, you know, people perceive Nolan scripts to be. I like that there is that little flourish of kind of humanity and warmth and passion there, where a character does make an emotional decision that, you know, just works out because of sheer luck uh, or because of predetermination, but whichever one it is. But, like, she gets to make the call herself, and she makes the call not based on, like, logic or rationality, just on her actual, she points out, scathing hatred of Sator. Like she, she does it because she cannot let him win, which I kind of admire. And, yeah. and then she, because I use this term in the swept away episode, and then she branas him off the boat, which I did quite like, to be fair. But the, the, and like she, 
Because she, I, I kind of felt watching it this last time, she doesn't really know who the protagonist is. Yeah. She doesn't and even know his so name. Like, 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 like the red like yeah. the audience. He has no idea who, he's, who he actually is. All he is is someone who's like kind of suggested that. And like, realistically, he's only going to make her life worse. Like she's she it's a, a terrible gamble that she yeah. she has taken for with with very little kind of evidence of like a why she ought to kind yeah. of yeah so just what it's like all the time um, that's why they go on holidays every two weeks <laughs> <laughs> she's always tried to destroy him and it's like uh Vietnam yeah <laughs> just clear <laughs> our head coach. yeah just just gonna clear our yeah. heads yeah just kind of. Um, live on the ocean, um, that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, she didn't try to kill me. It was me. I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. I didn't tie that yeah. well. I, 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 I'm, I'm silly with boats. Um, um, <laughs> it's, incidentally, by the way, um, and again, we had, we talked about like predetermination and paradox and the time travel stuff earlier on, but like because we're talking about Cat now, is it, it's, it's worth kind of noting, you know, are you aware of the theory that Max is Neil? Max is Neil. Yes. Are you aware of this? Is... But Max is Max. <laughs> fair, fair. Neil is Neil. Fair point. But they, they, um, what they have like middle names. Tell me about this. So yeah. the idea is that, again, you know, not, not all the kind of like, we're not going to go into all the, all the fan theory kind of stuff, but I do love that like it's Maximilian. It's it, like Max is, can be short for Maximilian. So Max is the uh... first three that is going that way. And then Neil is it going backwards. And also like we talked earlier about like the Sator Square and kind of like the reading of this kind of in a spiritual and existential sense and all that sort of stuff. The idea that like perhaps the name Tenet comes from the fact that Max went to Pompeii, which is home to one of the most prominent Sator Squares in Europe. It's one of the few, I think, that predates Christianity. If I remember my, my kind of factoids correctly. It, it was just... Yeah, they, it was it was it like thirty eight A D or yeah. something? Did it the the Pompeii one? I'm not sure. But it's it's, it's some, one of the uh, earliest they, ones anyway. Like and it, there was one where they feel like, can we actually link this yeah, to Christianity yeah. because it's a little bit too soon, kind of yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so the idea is that like Max went to Pompeii, saw the Sator Square, and that is maybe why Tenet was suggested as the name of the organization and stuff like that. And so you have it all tied together. I don't know if it is, but I kind of I feel like the child is blonde and kind of vaguely kind of like as as kind of tuffled hair. And I can kind of see that child growing up to be Robert Pattinson, perhaps. Functional which, alcoholic. Yeah, well, I mean, like yeah. with that relationship, all right? Cleans up good. Yeah, um, Cleans up well. Yeah. Um, learned the importance of foodstuffs. Um, you know, was mother unable to leave a, a glass of vodka um, unattended while in the midst of it. But yeah, so you know, in 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 Eden, you learn that um, little bits of meringue and um, stewed fruit and cream that's left over, you can make a mess out of it, and um, that's where 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 he got the. Our, our soda fan theory goes. Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. kind of. I think it's kind of loose and, and kind of there. But yeah, it, like okay, we'll like we'll, we'll come back. So you know, we're, we will talk about Cat in a moment. Um, but like let, let's talk about the real love story at the heart of town. Let's talk about Neil and the protagonist. So like in terms of their relationship, how the two of them bounce off each other. Because I actually do really love uh, Robert Pattinson. I think Pattinson is great here. He's possibly the mvp of the movie i think so i i, I think i think he is the mvp it was, it was like you took the words from off my lips 
um, just to 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 um, to another kind of um, uh, 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 queer shipping. <laughs> I think we're talking about each other's lips. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like did he he and and, and he's had such an interesting um, kind of uh, career. Like I haven't seen Good Time. Which is what got him the role, actually. Good time got him the role. Um, apparently, Emma oh, really? Thomas saw him in there and recommended him, and Nolan Walsh was like, "Yeah, that'll work," which is good. And he—he's such—he's such an odd guy, and I—I—I I, <laughs> like like him as a microwave spaghetti, I, isn't it, or microwave pasta? Was that the the big thing? Well, no, I <laughs> like. It seemed like an, uh, I saw an interview with him one time where he he makes up this story about um, he was like, "Have you ever went to the circus?" Um, or like, "What do you, what experiences did you have personally of the oh, circus?" Oh, this is because he did, water, he did for, water for, for elephants. elephants. Yes, he did. Yeah, <laughs> he told this story about going to the circus and the seeing a clown die. And then he was in his little clown car and it exploded and he died. Um, I don't think that happened. I think he made that up. I love that Andrew's like, this is how I can relate to him as an actor. But like I yeah. but again, like the fact that he's he's in this zone where he's feeling comfortable coming back to blockbusters again and the fact that like he's the role lets him be a little bit playful, a little bit quirky, a little bit silly, a little bit goofy. And the fact that like I mean, and again, you know, we talk about you know, that's the stereotype of Nolan being a guy without a sense of humor. I love that this is a movie in which Robert Pattinson plays a spy who works for an organization where characters are constantly telling one another, we live in a twilight world. Um, he doesn't get Tenet to actually, sorry, he doesn't get, um, he do, sorry, he doesn't get Pattinson to actually say that. But I do love that, like, the movie is all about how Robert Pattinson still lives in a twilight world. Um, which is kind of kind of a door. And the the fact that as many people have noted, like we noted, I think, with Cobb and Inception, the fact that he takes this incredibly handsome heartthrob young man and arguably styles him somewhat after himself. In that, like, if you look at pictures of Nolan, there's very much the same sort of energy where he's wearing the suit jacket and the scarf and the shirt. And like, you kind of arguably see that he's like, uh, you know, take one of the most handsome men alive. Yeah, make him look just a little bit like me. When you get a little bit older, as we're kind of finding out, you get a little bit more puffy. You kind of have like the the quite the kind of Pattinson angular. Well, I'm sure Pattinson won't always have that either. But yeah, yeah, it does, it does, it does feel like yeah that that's the way he's kind of um, uh, dressing. That. But yeah, so like in terms of kind of like um, just before we talk about kind of Pattinson, before we talk about Neil. Like, you know, we, we begin the spoiler zone by asking kind of what is it about for you? And uh, we got kind of so, I think, down that rabbit hole with yourself that like we didn't really necessarily get to kind of talk about like what I what I thought Tenet is about or like what me trying to make sense of Tenet. And I think one of the things that I, I do find interesting, one of the things that kind of resonates with me about it is this idea of what's happened happened, which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world, not an excuse to do nothing. Because like one of the, big things when Tenet came out was this whole debate that kind of people had about like oh it's it's too difficult to follow or oh it doesn't make sense or how does it all fit together or I can't follow everything that's happening in the movie from scene to scene and and just before we move on a, a quick thing on that is that like I 
I think that like when it comes to understanding or following Tenet, I think the further back you step, the more difficult it is. So I think that the movie, because, and again, I am a Nolan fan. I like the way that he makes movies. I think he is a good director. I think that Nolan's skill as a director is largely in his ability to communicate information to the audience, to let you know what you are looking at and why it is important without necessarily telling you exactly what it is. But I think that like on a scene to scene basis, it is quite easy to follow Tenet and figure out what is happening. It's like the characters want X. They are going to Y. They are doing Z in order to accomplish that task. And you understand, like, on a simple da-da-da-da-da action movie beat kind of way. And I mean, like, you know, we we might talk later on about the whole including my son thing with Cat, but at least that kind of, like, serves to kind of ground the stakes, you know, theoretically or abstractly kind of in something that is easy to follow. But I do think that when you step back with Tenet, like you, you do kind of go, ah, but wait, why? How does this fit together? Why does that work? Like, wh- it kind of doesn't matter. Like, like, like you yeah. think of things like Star Wars. Like, we don't know what the aims of the Empire as such are. Like, what they intend to do. Like, it, 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 it and that it just kind of seems about like consolidating power and their evil. So we must stop them. So, like, if 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 you're watching this movie. Kind of, I don't know. That, like, it has stopped a lot of people from enjoying it. But I agree. I, I, I tend to agree with you that I, I, I think scene to scene, it's comprehensible enough. Um, and if you can get on board with what um, uh, uh, Clemence has suggested earlier, to kind of, you know, as don't we say, try to understand it, just feel it. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I, um, I think like the thing is though, like the utter confusion around it and the chaos and the cacophony of it is I think the point in that like the whole thing is it's this idea of presentism it's the idea of the moment that we live in right now existing in this point or this nexus between past and present and the world being chaotic and arbitrary and random and things not really making sense and I mean like you can draw any amount of parallels that you want where like cause and effect seem to come undone or they're becoming more complicated in the world in which we live where we can't always trace a linear A happened therefore B happened therefore C happened because everything is is so much more complicated and, and difficult to parse and I mean not even like just the present day things like say you know the debate that we're having now over historical figures uh over statues where it's like oh yeah these these monuments of the past have always existed but why are we having the conversation now about contextualizing them or understanding them? Surely that matter was resolved when the statue was put up. And it's like, no, these are ongoing conversations that we have where we relitigate the past. And that kind of like Faulkner quote about how, you know, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past that kind of thing where it's all kind of coming forward and kind of ending up in a mess and a stew. And when you, you look at the way the world is, and I think that it's something that, you know, again, culturally we are perhaps more cognizant of now. I think the world was always complicated, always convoluted. I think these sort of things were always in effect, but I think we are perhaps more cognizant of them as a culture now because of... We're conscious now of the permanence yes. of of of, um, of now. Yes. That like... And, and it, 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 it comes up in this movie about kind of like how it, um, uh, our data is recorded and that, that speaks to the future. So that are we 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 yeah. How do you communicate with we, the future? We maybe have less kind of yeah. discretion to um, you know write the future. The future will see us more 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 clearly 
um, it, 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 you posterity. know, that, that, yeah, that, posterity. We're, yeah, everything yeah, we do exactly. now is in posterity because it's all online. And again, I think like part of this is, you know, you could argue this is an internet movie in inverted commas, like because everything is an internet movie. But it's like the influx of information that you have, where like you go online and you you tweet about, oh, I had a, a lovely ham sandwich, and then your your mentions are filled with people going, yeah, but have you thought about how that ham sandwich affects sustainability, or like have you thought about how that ties into things like the exploitation of labor? And it's like, no, I just I just enjoyed the ham sandwich. It, it's I, I didn't necessarily want to think about all these things that it's tied up in all these causes and effects that are kind of brought together and this influx of information you have kind of washing over you. And I think that like one of the things that Tenet does really well is it captures the sense that like it constantly feels like everything is happening simultaneously. And I know that is an, a, a sensation that is heightened by the fact that we have lived through a pandemic and we've been in lockdown and that has consisted of people like staring at their phones or watching 24 hour news and just watching all this cycle of information come at you like through a fire hose. But I mean, even before then, I would argue that, you know, people have talked about how things like the, the speed of 24 hours news affecting the human the human brain's perception of time. Things. It's not really twenty-four hour yeah. news, though. It's fifteen-minute news with with bits swapped out continuously, kind of rotating. Yeah, now. yeah. And it, it, and actually, like, um, I think Sky News is kind of like the the it tends to be like you've seen it all yeah. once once you've you've, you've caught a single fifteen. They're bomb. just repeating it over and over. Yeah. With with like um, uh, in in fairness to um, like the likes of BBC News twenty-four. Um, they are actually kind of going a little deeper with the. You could maybe say that for CNN. Yeah. I don't know about Fox <laughs> News, but they, they, they are they they're um, they're not just kind of repeating bulletins. They're kind of going deeper into stuff if that's your your taste. Um, but, but yeah, no, like so that that's kind of like to a rabbit hole. What, what kind of like jumped out at me about Dennett was watching it and it being this feeling of just being kind of like barraged and like the, the, the climax of the movie which is just pure chaos on screen where you have the to, to quote to quote Ives the temporal pincer movement um, where you have like the past and the present the past and the future attacking simultaneously and explosions that are happening from rockets that haven't been launched yet and walls that are putting themselves back together and buildings that are imploding and exploding simultaneously and it just it feels very much like a kind of a sensory overload and I, I feel very much like that's kind of intentional in the part of the film because you have this whole big recurring thing. And again, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about Nolan is his dependence on exposition. And Nolan's like, you know, we talk about how things like Inception is a movie that spends half of itself explaining itself, explaining the rules, so that the other half can just kind of roll with it as it goes. We talked about how like Interstellar is a, you know, $700 million blockbuster about the theory of relativity but where there are scenes where characters will like stop and draw something on a blackboard or talk about the theory of relativity and explain its concepts to one another and the audience and one of the things I find interesting about Tenet is that Nolan and again I think he's more self-aware than a lot of people or a lot of his critics give him credit for where this movie often seems to be preparing to give you massive dumps of exposition and then will cut away dramatically. So like moments where like Elizabeth... Are, are, are you can't yeah, hear that's, it? Yeah. 
like it it but it, it seems very kind of trollish because like like it it's like um he's heard the uh some of the criticisms and that he's Leaning kind of into it almost. yeah yeah and it, it it's you're kind of meant to to hear a lot of these things uh, um and you're you're, you're and it it's a movie that kind of invites you to understand it i think this is interesting the the whole idea of like don't try to understand it I'm not. I'm not crazy about that sort of um, the switch off your brain logic kind of thing. Is it? Yeah, because I. I think as as I said kind of earlier, did I, I. I don't think that's where the 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 strength of the movie is. Like there, there is maybe an argument that kind of the to to best understand you have to kind of intuit that it's not a um, that it's not that uh, um, that it's more. That when I say that, like to 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 don't try to understand, that it's more like don't try to analyze. Like when they say you kind of feel it, it's kind of like think into it. Don't kind of like think around us. I guess. Well, can I like this is the thing that I I kind of love about the movie is that like again, and the fact that Nolan is so trollish with that exposition. So you'll have the sequence where like Pattinson, where sorry, Neil sits down uh, with Cat, and he's like. I will explain exactly what's happening to you. And then the movie just cuts away. Like it literally just cuts away to an exterior shot of the boat. And I think you can hear the horn going as if no one's going. But I I think one of the things that I really like about the movie is that it seems like nobody in the movie entirely understands the logic of what is happening. I think like nobody has all of the narratively even like is there there's ignorance is kind of. It's knowledge divided. And like again, that's literally yeah, thematically. It's the idea like of, of splitting this stuff up and not bringing it together, and that's safest for everybody. But even things like say the sequence where they're on the boat, and you have like the two questions that you know the the protagonist asks Neil. The first one is about like the grandfather paradox, where it's like you know, I mean, look, if it's our children who are doing this, our descendants who are doing this, if they kill us, then surely they can never exist to kill us, and that's a paradox, and therefore it can never happen. And he's like we don't really know how that works. We believe that maybe it works this way. And then like the next question is like, but yeah, look, the fact that we are having this conversation right now as two people, surely that means that like they didn't invert the universe and all of time wasn't undone and existence and reality hasn't collapsed into itself because like if it did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And Neil's like, yeah, you know, you you would think that logically, but we also do not know that for sure. Um, and I kind of love that this is a movie that is about faith, for for lack of a better word. Again, like it's it's literally called Tenet. It's it's Tenet is something that you believe in. A Tenet is something that you hold to be true that is fundamental. And I I love that it's it's also ten for it is indeed because I... <laughs> the 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 ten minutes at at the at the end um, in Stalsk twelve. And it wasn't called Stalsk ten. <laughs> Or Stals 11, even. Um, or Stals 11, whatever Stals is backwards. I'm not going to try to do that live uh, on a podcast. But, like, the fact that it, like, the, the movie is, like, look, the world is, is complicated. The world is insane. Uh, things are going to happen in the world that are 
beyond your capacity to understand as they are happening because the world is chaotic and arbitrary and random. But your acceptance that you do not understand everything about the world, that you cannot know everything, that everything is not fundamentally knowable, that every, you know, that the butterfly effect cannot be traced back to its cause and you cannot be absolutely certain of anything does not discharge your moral responsibility to do the right thing in that situation, to try and make the world a better place. Like the fact that you believe that Sator can't possibly operate the algorithm and destroy the world doesn't free you from the burden of having to work to prevent him from doing so. Um, that sort of thing. The fact that you think that based on the logic of this story, predetermination and predestination must be forces because characters see things happen going both ways through time. And for that to make sense, there has to be only one way that history could ever have gone because observing it can't change the outcome. But that doesn't free you from the moral responsibility to make a choice to do the right thing. It's that moment where, you know, again, that, that moment with Claymont's Posey where she's talking about the bullet on the table. And she's like, he's like, she picks it up and he's just waving his hand over it and it's not moving. It's like, no, you have to have dropped it first. Like, he has to have decided to drop it. The choice is what matters. That point about fate is kind of on. I I felt like it was kind of undercut by the um, scene where they're explaining like if you don't see yourself uh, getting out, like don't get in. That like you have to know that that's um, that we're coming uh, out the other side. Uh, exactly. The, the flip side yeah. of that though is that like in that sequence, then the protagonist completely ignores Ives. Like Ives tells the protagonist what he can or can't do. That nobody's ever done the things that the protagonist is about to do. Things like driving a car, um, things like going out. It's all cowboy, um, whatever noise I'm going to use to censor the word oh. it is. Um, you know, it's all cowboy. Oh. But the fact is that he still kind of does it and he still... <laughs> See Darren looking at the time. Yeah, just, <laughs> just making a little note. Um, but like the, the whole point is that, yeah, you, you can't do this stuff. You, it's not the way that things are supposed to be. And like you have this whole thing with Preya where it's like, yeah, no, you have to kill Cat. Cat has to die to protect the organization. The protagonist is like, no, that's not how I operate. That's not my moral principle. Um, so I do. I like the kill you. <laughs> yeah, I will kill you. Well, to be fair, she was about to murder. Like, uh, um, she... now to be fair, Priya was going to wait until Max. You know, wasn't going to do it while Max was leaving school. She was going to make sure that Max found his mother lying dead on the street, not that she saw him getting shot. Which was, you know, I thought a nice thing. Could it? To, uh... <laughs> One of the 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 um, big blunderbuss, like wandering out. But uh, yeah, but no, I I I think that is I think that's a thematic point though. Is the idea that like you have to do because that that's the thing is that like what's happened happened like this is coming out like one of the big things in this is the idea of like climate change and the idea that you know the motivation for like. Why would our kids want to kill us? Which, by the way, I think I mentioned when we did Interstellar, I love that this is this is the most cynical response to Interstellar. Because Interstellar is like, look, climate change, the world is dying, the world's been telling us to leave for a long time now, but it's okay. Our kids are smart, our kids are kind, and our kids will save us, us the old people. They'll redeem us. And I love that, like, you know, five or six years later... You basically have Nolan going, 
you know what? I've lived a lot in these past six years, and I kind of figure that if our kids decided that we all deserve to die and never to have existed at all, they would probably be justified in thinking that uh, because we have completely forsaken them and have completely kind of like are unwilling to. I don't get how that's going to save them. <laughs> it's not going to save them. Oh, what, what you mean, Interstellar or? No, in 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 Tenet. No, Tenet is the opposite. Tenet is like, no, our kids aren't going to save us. Our kids are going to kill us, and they'll probably be right to do so. Our kids are going to decide that we deter- we don't deserve to ever have existed, which is like wonderful. They, they'll also be deciding that they shouldn't exist, but that nothing should ever exist. Nothing right? should ever exist because it's just suffering and pain. Because there is, they've been left with nothing. Their oceans boiled and their rivers rose. That sort of uh, poetry there. But the idea that, yeah, that like the future will judge us like and in Interstellar, it's like the future will help us. And it's like, no, in Tenet, the future will judge us. But the idea that like we may already live and again, wonderfully upbeat podcast, very positive, very warm, vibey movie. But the argument that like we may already be past like the tipping point in terms of climate change, like that, like climate change may have already reached a point where like short of a cataclysmic event we cannot get back to uh, an equilibrium and one of the big things is like how do we respond to that as a species and you see all these news articles about things like people going to like therapy to deal with the existential dread of there is nothing we can do that will in our minds save us as a species because we've already passed the tipping point and that can't be changed or like you see articles about millennials like having actual conversations and understandably so about like do we want to have kids do we want to bring kids into a world that is is going to turn out the way that it probably is i mean i've had conversation with friends who have who have kids and they're like i actually do as a parent think about that because it's going to be fine in my lifetime but after that what world am i am i leaving the child in question and i i like that tenant is like yeah that it's entirely possible that we live in in a world where the outcome is already predetermined, where the die has been cast, where things are going to turn out the way that they're going to turn out, and we cannot necessarily, as individuals, change the course of history. But that still doesn't excuse us from doing the right thing in the moment, from making the sacrifices, from trying to do what we can to make the world a better place. I find so the long as... strangely moving. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. No, no, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. After my cheesy little life, I that. No, I was going. I was going to say, like, you. I know you haven't. You. You, you haven't really addressed it um, yet, but all the heat you got about that ham sandwich. <laughs> it's like I, mean, I, I am the I'll, real hero. I'll. I'll do. I'll do what I can. Nom 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 but nom I, nom. I also want to eat this ham. <laughs> I really Sorry. do want to eat this ham. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I like. I am not the protagonist of this story, Andrew. <laughs> but I, I, I actually like. I, I think that's an interesting kind of like way. That's like that's my big takeaway from kind of Tenet is this kind of weird, like in the face of like really depressing nihilism or really depressing the idea that nothing. We do matters, and we we may be told that nothing we do matters. The idea that yeah, but the choices that we make still matter. The fact that like there is still a moral obligation to try to make the world to fix the world that we find ourselves in. I don't know. I I find that kind of like an incredibly like 
yeah. it's a, I think it's a bleak movie, but I think that's a, a, a an upbeat spin on a bleak movie, perhaps. It's be, be, because we see the world in a certain way. We have to be doing something for something. Yeah. Because, cause and because we see see things in terms of cause and effect. Yeah, you mentioned than... this earlier, actually. I think you wanted you you want to talk about this in terms of like looking at the world a different way, because I think you mentioned earlier in the podcast that's kind of one of the things you took away from Tenet. Yeah, about about what the movie meant to me. That it 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 was at least my first impression of the movie was that it was challenging you to um, think differently about the world or or. or or maybe just to consider the way we 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 do we are conditioned um, to think about the world in ter- in in terms of um, uh, the categories of our understanding, which don't necessarily map onto the way the world is on a in a in a in a kind of an ab- absolute independent sense that we are just kind of. Um, obliged uh, to see things a certain way, this happens and then this happens. But that it, 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 it doesn't, that, 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 is, that is the way we perceive things. But if, if you were to take kind of like a God's eye view, it's kind of like one marble, you know, where, where, where you, can, you can see the forces moving backwards and forwards because you can see the end as well as the beginning. Whereas we can only see the beginning and look forward to the end. So what we are doing is causing that. I would actually, yeah, just because you kind of mentioned this, this is something I'm thinking about as well, like in terms of, because I, I think you, we saw we saw this together. We may have mentioned this earlier in the, in the podcast, but we did see it together. Like when lockdown lifted, I think this was a movie you and I saw, went to the premiere of um, and we saw it together in a cinema, which was great. I really, really it was it. It was a super spreader event. It was a super spreader event. Um, everybody shook hands and hugged, and hugged afterwards. In, they were so happy about it. It was in scaries. There was a lot of face licking. Well, I think that was the after party, Andrew. I, I kind of I, I bailed out before the after party, luckily enough, um, because I am boring. But I think when we were leaving, you kind of mentioned that, and it kind of got me thinking actually, because like I think like this is a movie, I know in a weird way, I think about faith. Like, and again, like you have that moment where Neil describes it as like faith in the mechanics of the universe, but the idea of like it being about God and about like the question of like, are there things outside our capacity as people who are living in the present or in the moment to understand? Like, like I think, for example, the sequence where Clemence Posey kind of takes him in and shows him the detritus of the coming war. Like the, they all look like they're clockwork mechanics, which kind of reminds me of that old, like you know, the old parable about finding a watch in the desert. That old kind of story about God, the celestial yeah, watchmaker. That kind about of thing. the 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 kind of the teleological argument for yeah. for the existence of God, or or the the design um, um, uh, arguments that the, yeah. the that the universe shows these kind of like signs of. Of, in, um, intelligent purpose perhaps or kind of like um again that everything has its place or works to an end yeah which is some, something that i find kind of like the um sort of appealing i guess uh, um if 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 we are trying to because I, I i think there is an extent to which god is at least useful in terms of kind of um uh, understanding things but that maybe um what religion tries to do is to understand things that we can't 
understand because of the limitations of of where we're situated and then and that it's trying to get closer to an understanding of truth the same the same that in 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 in, in the same way that other philosophies like science uh, will but that 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 the kind of um i suppose the difference with faith is that you're looking for something kind of um more outside of ourselves and i mean like and i think like this is the thing with nolan's films in general is that there is this thread that runs through them about like the limits of human understanding the limits of like human perception how our understanding of the world is limited by our perception of it and our ability how we see it shapes obviously how we understand it and you know i mean things like the prestige where you have like angier talking about how he he wants to understand what it's like to drown. So he continually like drowns himself, but he can never retain the experience or the memory of it. Um, things like Memento, where um, you have Leonard talking about how like he wonders if he closes his eyes, does the world disappear like when he can't see it? Because he doesn't have, again, like, like Nolan and Time, he doesn't have any memory of his experiences. He doesn't have anything to ground him. He talks about how important it is for things to be tactile, to hold them. Again, something arguably very close to Nolan's. You could, you could probably draw a straight line between that line and Memento, where, he talk, where Leonard talks about how important it is that he knows the weight and the mass of an object. Um, as compared to like Nolan's emphasis on practical effects, where it's like, yeah, it's important to know the weight and mass of an object, but the idea that it's real, it makes it tangible in a way that makes the existential questions around it um, a bit easier to kind of grapple with. But it's still <laughs> mediated through us. Yeah, that's it exactly. Like we we we're not we're not we're not we can't suggest any absolute value. Yeah, yeah, we can't we 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 can't really know the thing. Yeah, we can only know how much. Uh, how it feels in our hand yeah and the idea that you know time is is like that and again like with with tenet the idea of like bending time and, and the perception of time and the experience of time and i kind of like that spiritual aspect to it as well because obviously like the things like the sator square um you know i i we'll, we'll come back to it later but i mean things like the the sator square which is this kind of you know again palindromic kind of structure where you have elements from that seated throughout the movie. You know, obviously, um, Sator is the villain. Uh, Arepo is the art dealer. Opera is the, the movie opening in an opera house. And Tenet is the name of the, the movie in question. Um, but you and have, the organization. And the organization as well. Rotas is, is the name of the, um, of the kind of like Freeport, for example. But the idea that like this, that is itself tied up in questions about theology and belief and religious belief and spirituality uh, throughout R- European R- history. Rotas is also, is it, is it like Latin? It kind of means a wheel. Yeah. And again, well. the, the, the imagery that you have there as well. But yeah, the, the idea that, you know, this is in some ways a movie about faith, about taking things on faith, about leaps of faith, about, you know, not necessarily understanding the universe, but like needing to be- believe in it, needing to like accept or make peace with your inability to understand the universe, if that makes sense, I think, which is, and again, perhaps arguably feels like a maturation of Nolan's themes, where like so many of Nolan's early protagonists are driven insane by the fact that they cannot know these things absolutely. So things like, you know, like Cobb from Inception. The fact that he's sitting there with the gun ready to to shoot himself 
if he believes the world he isn't in the world he's in isn't real for example and the fact that he cannot trust his own perception of reality and that driving around the bend things like memento where leonard doesn't have a complete memory of who he is and that driving him to desperation and kind of insanity arguably even things like batman where where nolan sorry where, where bruce wayne creates this myth of batman which is bigger than he is to kind of fill the gaps and kind of like struggling to understand that and like i think that you know you, i think the tenet is interesting because it it feels like the first nolan film where you have a character presented with these mysteries and these abstract questions and his response is, is just kind of to, to go with it, you know, um, just kind of like to roll, to accept that there are, you know, to accept the things he cannot know, to, to borrow that quote from Proverbs, I think, you know. Yeah, it, it's to, to, to um, and, and I, I, I know that this, I, I don't think unintentionally, but it, it, that it, give, it gives into a lot of kind of uh, religious allegory. Kind of apologies to any listeners who hate that stuff, but yeah, the 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 idea of things being revealed, I guess, rather than kind of us um, reaching them on our own, which yes. we can. Yeah, the idea that they exist independently, that they're not necessarily yet, yeah, that they're not necessarily great. they're concepts that are found out there in the darkness rather yeah. than kind of manifest. As you said, I think you're. You will mention it later in the podcast, but this idea that you will mention kind of later on of like meaning outside rather than inside um, in terms of the difference between perhaps religion uh, and science. Um, like like Bill and Ted, um, <laughs> I'm going to write that down so that I do that in the future. So that you come back to it um, as well. Um, while we're kind of talking about like this, this kind of like, and again, time being a huge part of it and the idea of how preoccupied kind of Nolan is with time. And again, like all of the podcasts we've talked about, this is not new ground. And everybody has, has noted that Nolan is a director who is singularly obsessed with time and particularly the use of editing um, as well to manipulate time. We like we mentioned things like his use of cross-cutting, um, where he will constantly cut between things happening either at different points in space and time to build momentum. Like, uh, you know, in Interstellar, he cuts between um, the attempt to dock with the station and then Murph trying to, like, rescue um, Tom's kind of wife and kids, that sort of stuff, you know, and kind of, like, jumping back and forth between them. I think what's what's interesting about Tenet is that it is arguably like an extrapolation of that where like time to Nolan is an editing trick because it arguably like the inversion is is really just Nolan hitting rewind and play at the same time on a VHS. I mean, that's how Clemence Posey's character explains it to the protagonist. She films a sequence of her picking up the bullet or catching the inset of the inverted bullet and then replays it in reverse to show her dropping it. And I kind of love that the movie, like for all that the movie is all the stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about in in a moment about like meditation on faith and belief and predeterminism and like the idea of like morality in a chaotic world where cause and effect are undone. I love that it's, it's also very much Nolan sitting there with a videotape and pressing rewind and play at the same time and going, this looks really cool. What if we build a movie around it? Yeah, or 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 the 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 building kind of coming up and down. Yeah, it's weird because be be because it's been kind of knocked down and restored simultaneously. Yeah, so you're watching it kind of shoot up and then like shoot down and like <laughs> whoa. Yeah, well, no, the, 
like that that's the thing like i and again like this is the thing where like i know that i you know and again i don't want to sound basic and i don't want to sound like an idiot but i also do like stuff when stuff has flowed good um i really <laughs> like when stuff get blowed up real good but like when i'm watching a blockbuster like show me something that i haven't seen before and i know i know that the response here is darren have you not seen backwards the episode of red dwarf and it's like okay fine Show me something that has never been done before on a $200 million budget in a blockbuster. And like, I, I love that it's like, yeah, like, like I see that image of the, the building exploding and reconstructing simultaneously. And my brain doesn't know how to process it. Like I have watched the climax of this movie several times and I understand intellectually what is happening. Like I get that Neil is going backwards and forwards and looping over it and they are circling around and they're they're like, you know, temporal pincer movement and all this sort of stuff. But like watching it in action, it seems as chaotic as something like the opening sequence from Saving Private Ryan. And it's also stuff that I have no frame of reference for. I have never seen anything that looks like this. And it's kind of like, I am amazed after, like, you know, we joke on the podcast, I think when we had Jay on, Andrew's like, your problem, Jay, is that you have seen too many movies. Your problem, Darren, is that you have almost seen too many movies. And I do like that, like, even though I have almost seen too many movies, I can still see cool stuff that blows my mind, which is kind of cool in a very superficial way, you know? I don't know. I, I find that stuff really impressive. Um, and I do like, and again, we'll probably come back to the idea of Nolan's as exposition guy later on and the way in which so much of this movie seems to be Nolan trolling fans. But I love, he does this thing. And I wonder, part of me wonders if it's like, we talked about on Dunkirk, the thing where he was like, he asked like the joke Nolan tells about Dunkirk where it's like, oh, I wanted to make the movie without a script. Like I wanted to make this movie like, with no exposition whatsoever, with no explanation to the audience of what's going on. And, like, as it stands, Dunkirk is an incredibly stripped-down movie. There is no, like, briefing scene. There's no map scene. There's no moment, like, we watched 1917, which is this visceral, intense, kind of, like, experiential war movie, and they still manage to include a scene where Colin Firth shows up and says, here's a map, here's where you are, boys, here's where you're going, good luck, tip, tip, have some tea. And I love that, like, Dunkirk was like, no, no map scene, no explanation no contextualization no briefing rooms nothing like that and i love that like you look at tenet and it seems like nolan from doing dunkirk was like yes but what if what if i make a movie like inception but i adopt the same approach to exposition that i did in dunkirk which is i rely on things like visual storytelling to do it so things like the sequence where Neil and the protagonist have to get into uh, Priya's little mansion at the top. So how they do it is they bungee jump from the ground into the skyscraper, which is an inverted bungee jump. It's the opposite of what you're supposed... It's the rever- It's going backwards. And Darren's like, I like... This is clever. Because the movie is telling me what this movie's going to do by doing it as an action sequence before it explains the concept. And then you have, like, that later on, this, sorry, this is Darren. Darren's just geeking out about this movie. Darren loves this movie so much. Um, but that moment where, like, they have the car chase in Estonia, and, like, they have the sequence where they, they attack the Brinks truck, and they kind of, like, form up on it with, like, the four squadrons. I, by the way, um, 
speaking of that scene, um, I like to put that on when I'm coming to a very busy like motorway. <laughs> it's coming, coming, it, it was like a, I think it was like a um, was it Sunday evening coming from like Belfast into Dublin, kind of like on the M1. And it, uh, oh, you play the music, the kind of like the, yeah, the score. The... It's like play trucks in place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that Petrina's like, but I love that like Petrina's also on. It's like yeah, that that, that this is the proper sound. I think she it was more. I think that it tolerated. Oh, okay. <laughs> and enthusiastically embrace. Really, yeah, maybe like appreciate. Okay, he's driving. I will, <laughs> I will indulge this small like anxiety attack. Yeah. <laughs> but but like like you call the trucks in place because that's what it is. They they glide around the truck and they force it. They force it to move along its predetermined path to avoid tripping off the kind of guys who are monitoring it back at the base. So they That's don't a map that... scene. They're looking at... Yeah, they are looking at a map. Uh, they are looking at GPS. But the whole thing is that the sequence works because the truck, against its will, is moving along its predetermined path without exercising any intent or any desire to do so on itself. And so you have this idea of predeterminism suggested in the movie via action sequence metaphor before the protagonist actually has the conversation, but surely the fact that we're here right now means that we they don't blow up the world. I it's love... a rather small escort. Yes. You probably do need big... <laughs> like, like, I I know people who go in, like, army escorts for, like, kind of, you know, money being moved and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, they, 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 it, it would seem that they would have more people for something like that versus, like, this world-ending... Yeah, we have no idea what this device actually is. We should probably just gotta ship it across here, which I do, which I do like. But no, I... it's like they've got private kind of, and that they've skimped. Maybe that's realistic. Maybe like uh, uh, nuclear kind of um, controls or or NATO funding. Maybe. Also, just to throw people off guard, you know. I mean, it, it really kind of catches. Like nobody's gonna think to rob that lone truck that has absolutely no kind of security to it. I mean, if it was important, <laughs> it would have an escort, right? See, eh? eh? That's what that's you what they're put thinking. Put it in there. a station uh, wagon. <laughs> yeah, just throw it in a bag it's a, like a, Her- it's a Goya and a Herod's bag that's that's what you really want yeah. people to kind of think that it is um, and there, sorry, like on, on the Goya and the Herod's bag actually one of the things I do like about it is that like this is kind of a James Bond movie this is kind of Nolan doing his big spy movie because I mean we talked before we talked about like Inception is very much like him doing Honor Majesty's Secret Service for example um, and we talked about how, like, he's, he said, I would love to do a Bond movie, just, like, not right now, uh, because I like making these $200 million movies that are completely my own thing. But I, I like that as much as this is a Bond movie, and it's very much structured like a Bond movie, and it's playing with some the iconography of the Bond movie, in that, like, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Like, it looks stunning. Um, like, and again, maybe this is just pandemic fever, and, and maybe this is just, like, you know, modern blockbusters like Jungle Cruise are just CGI messes now where they don't film on location. They film in, say, car parks in Atlanta. But, like, the fact that they actually go to Italy to shoot that, like, speedboat sequence or the fact that they have these kind of beautiful meetings or the fact that they shoot in, like, Estonia on location, it looks really 
tactile and physical and, and real in a way that I, I really love, even just on a TV. I imagine they'd done Italy doubled for Vietnam as well, because they didn't see a a location listed for, for, for Vietnam at the end. So presumably the yeah that makes sense. They... Uh, but like one of the things I like about it is that it and again, it doesn't hammer this theme particularly heavily, but I do like that it's there. This preoccupation that it has with capitalism, basically, or with like late capitalism, or with like money and wealth and privilege, and we have no how... priority about your yes. property. Yeah, the the kind of Freeport sequence where it's literally like we will suffocate anybody stuck in the room in order to properly secure our clients' uh, material. The fact that an entire action sequence takes place in a Freeport, which is basically like a tax haven scam, it's like a way of a tax avoidance um, tax. Yeah, tax avoidance, not evasion. But things like you have him having dinner with Michael Caine, and Michael Caine's like, Brooks Brothers are not going to cut it. Things like the sequence. Like, I love that it's like he's doing all the Bond stuff. And all the Bond stuff is that thing that you have. Like, I think Ian Fleming originally wrote, when you read Ian Fleming's original kind of Bond novels, they read as much like lifestyle guides for people who want to pretend to be rich and famous or want to pretend to have wealth like hang out in gentlemen's clubs, drink exotic cocktails, all that sort of things. And I love that like Tenet is like, no, the rich are so wealthy. They're like so wealthy that they are almost a different species from the rest of us. And your attempts to impersonate one of them or to sneak into their circle will immediately identify you as other because you cannot pass as somebody as you know, absurdly wealthy as these people are. You think you know what an expensive suit is, you don't. I'm even you trying you know... to not seem like a spy, though. <laughs> like, if you if you say that you're, like, like what what is it, first... If if if, if, if you announce yourself as, like, a diplomat, that, that's, like, <laughs> that's your cover. Code, that's pretty much it, code. It, it's, um... it, you know, they, 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 they will... It, generally have like like the, the that was the thing during kind of like the cold war and i'm sure maybe still is that you would have these kind of um stations where you would you would have somebody with with an overt role and a covert role where they're um one of them is actually a diplomat and the other one is the spy is the, the person gathering information well, no, they, they, they have to perform some of the kind of overt duties as well functions yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that like some element of spycraft includes convincing people you are not a spy. To be fair, by not being a spy, um, yeah, <laughs> by doing things on a spy. Yeah. Would a spy do this paperwork right here that I'm doing right yeah, now? Yeah. Um, but I do kind of love how the movie is so, like, so obsessed with this kind of like level of wealth that is. Again, like like most Bond movies are kind of travelogues, and they're like, wouldn't it be great to have money? But this movie, like, Tenet is like. No, having money is so weird that you, it, it alters, like, you don't even have a frame of reference. Like, that, that sequence where they go on the sailboat, where Kat tries to kill Sator by unhooking him. It's like, I have never seen a sailboat like that. That's not how I know that sailing is supposed to work. Is that, that's how rich people sail, not the I type of sailing that you do. <laughs> it's like in my yacht, I know in my nothing about yacht. sailing, and I've never seen sailing like that. <laughs> That's f- fair point. Th- thank you. I know, like, thank they, you. They, 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 I, I think they run them in like the World Cup um, for like sailing, oh, okay. those sorts of like catamaran. Um, 
yokes. Yeah, yeah but they, they, it is remarkable to see it shot like that kind of up close because I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd really seen it like that either. Yeah. And the fact that, like, again, it, it's so, like, Sator, and I mean, we talked about this with the Cold War stuff, I mean, earlier on in the episode, but things like Sator living on his own yacht that is basically its own international country and, like, has this kind of diplomatic immunity. The fact that, like, he's, you know, the joke that he is so new money that his money doesn't actually exist yet, he has to get it sent back to him from the future. But the fact that, like, he is so protected and so insulated and the fact that, like, you know, when, when... <laughs> When you are that rich and wealthy, and again, if you're being kind of skeptical about it, but when you are that rich and wealthy, like the laws don't apply to you. And Tenet just takes that one step further. So it's like, no, when you're that rich and wealthy, the, the laws of physics don't apply to you anymore. They're really just kind of suggestions or guideposts um, at that point. But I kind of, I love the idea that, you know, before the protagonist wanders into, oh, by the way, and also he can turn back time and time works backwards. It's like, no, even even before then, this is something that you have no frame of reference for understanding. This is something that is so alien and so weird and so odd. I found really striking. I also quite liked Sator um, as a character. I found Sator fascinating as, as kind of like as an antagonist because he's just so scuzzy. Yeah, and I, I didn't enjoy... I, I like the 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 scene with himself and and Cat um, in the in Talon in the in the kind of um, in the shed with all of the oh, guns. in the room where he beats her. That they actually had to cut. Um, uh, they had to cut some stuff from that to get the PG rating, I believe. Yeah, where he um, beats her and he kind of spits on her and. And kicks yeah. her and stuff. I think the version we like. I think the version we saw, the preview we saw, the premiere we saw, may have been the one before it was cut. I think there were a couple of changes when I saw it in cinema the next time. So I do think, yeah, that, that was something that was actually cut down um, from its original version, which is which is striking. But like, it it's so he's so unpleasant, which is like because normally when you have these villains in these spy stories or these Bond movies, particularly when they're like science fiction-y and kind of gadgety and kind of you know oh secret society and kind of heightened it's like no i am a sophisticated gentleman who has uh was it your your christopher lee in person come come mr bond uh where we're not so different after all underneath it all or i have a grand philosophical statement Ooh, you I enjoy do. killing yeah just, just as, as much as, as i do, do. <laughs> there we go thank sorry, you mr. sorry um, uh, i've i've butchered it i beg your pardon <laughs> i I think I think to be fair, um, I I butchered it. You yours was a mercy killing, perhaps. But things like Sator, um, the fact that Sator is so simple and so grubby and so unromantic, he's just a deeply unpleasant individual who happens to have been in the right place at the right time to make his millions as the Soviet Union collapsed, and he's still just unpleasant to absolutely everybody. Like. That sequence where he threatens, like, and again, people say that Nolan doesn't have a sense of humor, isn't self-aware. That, like, incredibly long monologue he delivers to the protagonist about how he's graphically going to torture him by making him choke to death in his own balls. Which what I if, have to imagine is... What if the protagonist's balls are really small? Um, well, I, I guess he's going to choke on them yeah. anyway. On the blood, the, yes. Probably the yeah. blood is also... The fact what if he can, what if he can push the, his balls... What if he can like cough it up into his mouth and then just eat it? Um, 
Would that work? I, I don't. I'm not a doctor. I think I, he's going to die I feel, anyway. I, yeah, I feel the need to clarify I'm not a doctor. But... I'm not a doctor, but I, I think I can say with with, with certainty, certainty. If, if you're in this situation where somebody cuts a hole in in your neck and pushes in uh, your, your, your genitals, you know, the, the best thing to do is to try and um, cough that Jenny up to the um, mouth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and then chew it. So okay, I I would not have any advice to get. And then go in a turnstile <laughs> so that your your balls come out your mouth. <laughs> when they use the loo. <laughs> How did I know that this was going to be a question? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it's okay. I I had like a question of like things I think Andrew is going to ask about inversion, and it's like. How does sex work was question number one. Um, so I'm glad that we didn't hit that one. How does pooping work is question number two. The, as far as I can gather. That, that is covered in backwards, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that like with pooping, you would have to be a real sick twist, Andrew. Because like if you're in It helps if you've you had poop, Yeah. Well, you, you have, have to, to have, have had it first, Andrew. <laughs> you have to have dropped it first. Yeah. Um, you just the pretend thing is, to go you, to you the Sorry. <laughs> well, that's it. You you have to invert a piece of poop, right? You have to find a piece of poop and you have to invert it. And then you have to wait for somebody who needs to go to the toilet to like unbuckle their pants directly over it. And then it will go up because the poop has to be inverted, but the person isn't. That's the way it works. As far as I understand it, based on the logic that this movie applies to guns. I am so glad that I asked myself what would Andrew want to talk about with this movie and I was like I need to I need to have an answer prepared for this. But I think that yes, unless you need the, to get the situation you were imagining in which the poop fires upwards into somebody, you need to invert the poop and de- not invert the person. Otherwise if you invert the person you just you have a poop but it looks like it's going into you, but it's not actually. Well if you had like a temporal pincer <laughs> <laughs> The uh, temporal three seashells, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, to, to bring it back to like Sator again, like how thuggish he's. I think he's the most unpleasant Nolan character, probably going back to like Memento, where he seems like he's actually grubby. I do. Like I hope at some point in my life I find somebody who loves me as much as Kenneth Branagh loves doing questionable accents in movies. Um. I love that he commits to this. I enjoy Never. it. People yeah. kind of were were felt like it was too much. I I I, I was quite happy with 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 what he yeah. was doing accent wise. I think it's lar- It's larger than life, which I think the movie kind of needs. Like it needs a presence because I think like the protagonist is just the protagonist. I mean, I think John David Washington is great. I think he's really good in the role. I think he's charismatic. Uh, but again, he's literally a blank slate by definition um you have neil who is kind of like you know a supporting character but you you i think you need sator to be like larger than life like for the movie to i feel like he was written too kind of uh, villainous like i don't i don't think he he's a kind of a villain that i can understand i want to sort of empathize more with and he's he's just so kind of monstrous that it it feels like it gets into the whole kind of um, environment we live in where we don't see our kind of opponents as people um or we're 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 
Yeah, yeah. We don't see them as being kind of fully faceted, well, three-dimensional individuals with motivations and desires and wants and, and kind of complex psychologies, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, kind of the, the, the uh, polarizing kind of politics and that sort of thing. But where 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 you can't kind of um, anything that somebody does, if you've kind of decided that, yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, going back to Sator, yeah, it, it it seems like he's kind of he didn't feel uh, real to me. I, guess. I again, this is one of the things where I I find myself after the past five years reassessing a lot of what feels real, uh, in that I I you know I kind of do understand the idea of there being this larger than life cartoon figure um, who is this powerful and this unimpeachable and this untouchable uh, who manages to do these things and I know that the forces around that person are more complicated uh, and more nuanced and more motivated perhaps but I, I do I find myself more forgiving of the idea of the villain as pure uncontrolled id than I probably would have been about six years ago I don't know what I could possibly be referring to or talking around, but that's kind of just how I feel at the moment, really, I think, uh, in terms of the presentation of Sator as well. Um, and again, I, I like that, like, this idea of kind of wealth is, is baked into the movie as well, because you have it even at the start where, like, during the opera siege, you have that moment where they're planting bombs to kind of, the, the Russian agents are planting bombs to cover up what they're doing. Is stealing the cheap the, seats. You know, that's it. It's just the cheap seats. And you have that moment where the protagonist... Uh, solves the problem by throwing them up into the uh, into the into the boxes into the private boxes, uh, which is interesting as well. So I kind of like the idea that everything in the movie um, is structured around that. But sorry, Andrew. So what is um, sorry? Now that we're in the spoiler zone, uh, what is Tenet about for you? What I'm going to try to do, and I think this is going to make for some uh, bad content, is I'm going to try to tell you what I think the movie is about, like to explain. The plot, and I don't think I can, just while 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 I'm starting off. So, I I I I should probably give myself a time limit. Well, have we ever given ourselves a time limit on this podcast, Andrew? Have we ever? In the future, they created um, this technology. The creator of it felt the the algorithm that they created would uh, destroy the world, like Oppenheimer. Was it, there, were, there, were, there, were, there was a fear when they were watching it, Los Alamos. They were like waiting to see. I wonder if this if this destroys the whole world. Yeah, same thing with the Large Hydrogen Collider kind of fear as well. The idea. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember movie. my friend Peter being like, "I can't believe we just learned this new menu, and now the world's going to end." That was that was time we could have spent doing something else. I'm not going to be able to use that knowledge. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's, that is that is that that is true. You, you, you totally <laughs> wasted all that time learning that new menu. But um, there, there, there is a worry from that scientist. So what they do is they separate out these um, and and put them in the past in the hands of the uh, main nuclear powers. The um, presumably the 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 sponsors of whatever this talk, technology are wants to um, bring these pieces back together so they go back and that is that is what they're trying to do they use sator to uh, to do this but that's not what sator wants to do what sator wants to do is he wants to um, uh, destroy the world because he cannot conceive of anything greater than himself because he lacks the ability to see outside himself yes and he doesn't want kind of third um, 
I guess like had to have any kind of agency. He wants he wants to kind of like um, end her world on his terms. So um, the difficulty is <laughs> how do I then tell the story the other way? So <laughs> when that is happening, the CIA are trying to um, recover one of their um, moles in the, I think, Ukrainian um, or Russian um, security services. When they when they go in, they find that the, that that there is um, this device that they cannot explain. This is, um, and then that is what takes them into that. The more the more and more he learns, the 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 decides that there is something that must be done, but that's later on. And he he basically um, tries to do, I guess, the opposite of what Sator was going to do by keeping keeping them separate and um, setting up this organization to protect the mission of this person who has um, who's kept these this this algorithm separate. Is that about it? Kind of. Yeah, I think that. That about fits, yeah. Like in, in terms of yeah, in terms of like the logic and the mechanics of, of kind of what is actually happening, and then you also have at the same time the idea of the protagonist and and kind of the idea that he sets up an organization that in the future spans backwards, and and he is controlling his own actions, and and kind of he is the own he's his own chess master and stuff like that, which is is interesting. And I mean the implication that certain characters may be present in the story as children and then later as adults as well, which is. Yeah, so again, standard time travel stuff, which is, is kind of interesting, even though it's not really a, a time travel story in the conventional sense, like the Back to the Future, and that it's it's much more obsessed with the process and mechanics of it than it is. I think, the... I, I think Kat is Sator's mom. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into that later in the, in the podcast episode. That's, that's, the big, <laughs> that's the big twist kind of coming here as well. No, it's a spoiler zone. And now, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely uh, would would recommend uh, watching it. I mean, like this is my favorite movie of last year. It's it's one of my favorite blockbusters. It's a movie that I have like enjoyed rewatching as well. Every time I've gone back to it, I have gotten something new and something interesting out of it. Like it, it scratches all of these kind of itches. I think we we kind of like alluded to it, like when we talked about like you know the previous question, like this is a movie that feels like it was grown in a lab for Darren. Like this is a movie where it feels like if he took reached inside Darren's brain with a scoop and just kind of ladled it out and then stirred it up and maybe added some sugar, which Darren quite enjoys to the mix. This would be what you'd end up. It's like, yeah, it's about the end of history. Yeah. It's about the fall of the Soviet union. Yeah. It's about trying to make sense of a chaotic world. Yeah. It's about the idea that the world doesn't really make sense and you have to impose meaning on it. Yeah. It's, it's full of all these kind of Nolanian tropes about like how time works and how perception and reality kind of intersect with one another. So yeah, I, I absolutely would recommend watching it. Um, I remain disappointed that I, I never really got a chance to see this on, um, IMAX. Um, I got to see it in cinemas a couple of times when it was out last year. Really disappointed to get to see it in IMAX, but 
even if you have a, a good home cinema system, I, I think it, it's it's absolutely worth your time. What about yourself, Andrew? Would you recommend people watch the movie? I would recommend that people watch it. And I, I, I have a sense I can guess whether you're going to recommend it or not. The, the um, I, I, w- I would recommend it with, 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 with some caveats. I would say that it's not everybody's thing. I yeah. think that it's a more difficult maybe movie to get into in some ways than 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 other Nolan movies that it's 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 kind of um, yes pushing more into the area that can kind of alienate people who are kind of undecided about about Nolan. Having 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 said that, it it it's it, it is reasonably comprehensible, and I think as well watch it with subtitles if you're streaming. I think that helps. I think we said that with Interstellar. Yeah, as well. I think you mentioned it kind of being like alienating. I think, yeah, I um, one of the things I really responded to here is the fact that this feels like Nolan almost being obtuse as much as he can let himself be. We've talked in the podcast before about how Nolan is arguably like one of the rare big populist blockbuster filmmakers who who exists, a director who has his own distinctive mark and his own distinctive trademarks and who makes movies that are generally crowd pleasing and like non IP derived. But this really does feel from a Batman. Bit... It's kind of oh, like the the, yeah, the biggest, biggest kind of yeah, like the IP that exists in the world. Was, was the the Dark Knight kind of? Yeah. Um... No, no, I, I, I know, I know. There's a tendency to oversell it, but those are like three of you know eleven, three or ten or eleven movies at this point. You know, like I mean, I, I think he's the only director who would get a movie like this made today, for example. But I, I do think that like this is. Like you look at something like Interstellar, as Interstellar, you look at something like Inception. Those are kind of like broad, crowd-pleasing, accessible movies. This, this is still accessible. I don't think this is like a lot of the the hub of around it was that it's inaccessible or it's alienating or whatever. It is. I could see where that criticism comes from, in that I think it's perhaps one of the first movies or one of the the movies in Nolan's filmography where the him being cold or kind of like you know unemotional perhaps holds a bit more weight for me than it does with his other films. But it reminds me a lot of stuff like, say, late Michael Mann movies. So things like, say, Miami Vice, things like Black Hat um, and kind of like Sorcerer. We talked about Sorcerer, like being William Friedkin's kind of movie. It reminds me of that where it's just a director taking the parts of themselves that they are interested in and turning up the volume dial very, very much. So So I'm not surprised that this wasn't as eagerly or enthusiastically embraced as something like, say, Inception. And in some ways, it's kind of accessible in the sense of there is an, there is a lot of action, but it's not actually that violent. There's kind of like like in, in it, it will cut away from certain things. So you you kind of like Hitchcock, you feel like you've seen more than you've been shown, but it it, it is so it's not as explicit. So like. Um, that's always been Nolan's thing. I mean, like, The Dark Knight is, like, ridiculously violent for a PG-13 movie because he doesn't show any real blood. Like, that, like Nolan's very, very good at kind of skirting those lines, I would argue. Um, so, like, yeah, this is a movie that, like, you know, not to get too spoilery, but towards the opening sequence, there's a moment where, like, a man has a lot of his teeth pulled out with pliers. And it's not that you see it, but you, you also, you also don't, trivialize it it also does feel uncomfortable and unpleasant in a way that you imagine a sequence with pliers and and teeth might as well without being graphic or indulgent or anything like that i think you know um for myself i mean 
probably actually like I, I normally hedge when we ask these questions like would this be on my own personal 250 um because you know i like to have time to appreciate and take a step back and i'm kind of a little bit cautious i don't even have like a 250 we did when i opened up i you know we'll come back to it later on but i did open up questions for people on twitter if they want to ask us and joey maroney asked like are we ever going to reveal our own personal 250s um and Maybe is the answer to that. But what what about yourself, Andrew? Like, do you think maybe would are we ever going to reveal our our personal fifties on this podcast? Um, on our OnlyFans. <laughs> um, but um, but for myself, yes. Um, this was my favorite movie of last year. I have not lived two hundred and fifty years. I that's suspect a great that year for movies. No, no, considering that's... a lot of the the movies that would have been kind of coming out, like it's every second Bond movie is generally good. <laughs> So like yeah. no time to die is good. Good maybe of or similarly Dune might have been one of the best movies of last year, but they um, all got pushed back. And like again, again, like the weird thing is that we are like we're now living in the phase where movies are beginning to trickle out again, and blockbusters are beginning to trickle out. And with with one exception that I, I will come back to later in the podcast, when we talk about recommendations. Generally, been underwhelmed by the blockbusters that have been released so far this year. Movies like say F nine. Uh, movies like say um you know in the heights to pick an example um the conjuring even a quiet place part two which i, I quite enjoyed um uh, black widow all this sort of kind of left me very cold despite the fact that like this was the stuff that was supposed to be out last summer and we're finally getting to see it i i did feel kind of underwhelmed by it and i think a, a large part of it is that like i adore this movie because it feels so weird and so personal and the kind of blockbuster that you don't really see getting made anymore which is a big director who has like earned a great deal of faith from his studio and i mean we'll, we'll talk at the end about like you know we'll talk later on about whether or not like what the relationship with nolan might be going forward with warner brothers but like at the time when he made this he was the guy who was like yeah you you can do whatever you want on the studio dime because we know that you will make the money back and it's like this is this is what i want from blockbusters like it's a big ambitious film that has its own distinct worldview that is grappling with big ideas that is the product of like a singular mind for better and for worse and reflects the passions and interests of that mind so yeah i i think this is probably on my own personal 250 and we've talked on the podcast before about how you know that that's okay it's okay for somebody to be like all david fincher movies are on my 250 or all Christopher Nolan movies, with the possible exception of following, are on my 250. But what about yourself, Andrew? Would this be on your own personal 250? Yeah, it, I, I, I think it actually would. I do appreciate the audacity of it I and its intelligence, its kind of rewatchability. I don't know if I... Um, I, I think Interstellar will still be... Your favourite Nolan my, movie. My favourite, and I don't know... I don't know how close this will be. I, I I would probably put this below kind of much Nolan movies, but um, again, it, 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 like for people who are kind of listening ahead, if if you don't like Nolan movies, you're probably not going to agree with us on things because like we will like things that like will 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 put you off. This for me, it um, would or at least might be on my top two fifty. I mean, uh, yeah, again, like, I would, for my own point of view, I mean, I don't know if it would make my own, like, top Nolan films. I think it would, like yourself, be probably near the bottom. But I will say it has grown on me. Even in the year that it's been out, rewatching it, coming back to it, I've found that there's stuff to dig into there. Um, in terms of, like, do I think it belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? 
Ah, I'm kind of hesitant on that, if only because I feel like there's probably enough Nolan on there already. And again, this is the difference between it being my list and, and it being a list that claims to be the list. In that I think that, you know, you have the big four Nolan movies on there. You have Memento, you have The Dark Knight, you have Inception, um, and you have The Prestige. And yes, Andrew, you do also have Interstellar. Um, but I, I do think that, like, you can argue that, like, he's, he's, he's overrepresented uh, on the list. And maybe he doesn't need another one on there. And even if he did, would Tenet be the one that you put on? Even if I think, I think this is a good blockbuster movie. I think this does stuff that I have never seen a blockbuster movie do before. So I could make an argument at a stretch for it, but I, I do think it would be a tenuous argument for Tenet. Uh. Um, eh, eh. But what about yourself, Andrew? Do you think that this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? No, I, 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 I don't think there's an, enough of a real argument for it, and I, I, I think maybe its flaws or its perceived flaws are maybe too strong. I, I, I don't know if the, if any of the kind of uh, performances of the movie are worth are worthy of kind of putting it into the two fifty. I don't know if um, kind of visually um there are things that you haven't seen in other but in terms of kind of pushing the envelope i don't know if this does enough um to 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 kind of uh, on 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 that basis basically i i i think kind of like if you want to kind of go down the line of of what would be the arguments i don't think there's 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 a strong enough argument for this being on the 250 regardless of my thoughts on it all right then, I, I think it's time to kind of before we hit the spores, I'm gonna ask gonna ask the three questions. Um, but I I was kind of so that's kind of the backstory and and the context behind Tenet, like explaining how it was and kind of how it came to be. Nolan first really had the idea, I think, to do this. He mentioned about say 2014, it's about 20 years ago, so he had like 2000, but he really began working on the script, I think, around about 2014. Um, and obviously, like any other project, he went to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers said, look. You made a version of Dunkirk that earned half a billion dollars. You made a a World War II movie uh, that made half a billion dollars and got a Best Picture nomination. Um, you wrote a movie about the theory of relativity that earned $700 million worldwide. You are responsible for the last movie to earn over $800 million, not to be based on existing intellectual property and not and in live action. Fine. Yeah, you, you can do this. You can, you can make this movie yourself. And so Nolan kind of made this movie... Um, in that kind of context and that's kind of like how it was produced and this is the thing where I want to be careful about how I frame this because I know like Nolan is culturally dominant to put it uh, or was when this was produced culturally dominant to put it mildly Um, he was a massively successful director who enjoyed creative freedom that other directors can only dream of I think there's an argument to be made that he might be the last auteur to operate on this level. In that, this like, might I, be one of the last movies where. He, where any I, 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 well, actually, yeah. no. I, 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 I doubt that's, that. Um, that I, I, I think I think he'll, he'll be given other opportunities, but I don't think this movie makes the kind of um, the argument. I don't think this movie gives him any license to go off and do something. Like big the way um, that uh, Dark Knight or Inception did. Yeah, Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, even at those, or even yeah. Dunkirk. Like I, I yeah, I get... like even with Dunkirk, Dun, 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 Dunkirk was very successful. 
half a billion again half a billion dollars on a world war ii film about an event that americans like historically knew nothing about which is, is yeah. stunning like like that's a level of like that's a, an incredible uh thing and i feel like yeah but i think that like again to be careful about how i frame this because i am aware that like he enjoyed these freedoms and these luxuries and you know but it did feel like there was, and arguably it's been brewing since, say, The Dark Knight Rises and the response to The Dark Knight Rises, but a sense in which Nolan kind of needed to be taken down a peg um, in terms of the discourse and in terms of how he was seen and how he was discussed. And I think you can arguably see some of it in the critical response to this, where you have, like, the New York Times review is like, well, if you take away all the time-bending special effects and high concepts from the movie what you're really left with is a, a mediocre Bond parody. And it's like, yeah, but you see, if you, you take away what makes any movie unique from that movie, the movie ends up feeling a bit less unique for the result of that. But things like during production, you had Anne Hathaway uh, doing an interview with Hugh Jackman, where she told this anecdote about how when they were filming Interstellar, Nolan wouldn't allow chairs on sets because he didn't want people kind of sitting around and chatting. He wanted them actually filming stuff in order to get stuff kind of done productively. And the internet ended up going completely wild over this, saying, oh my god, Nolan is, like, ableist and he's he's a snob and he's 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 torturing these people on his set. And it's like, no, if you, if you Google any set from any Nolan film, you will see that the people actually working the cameras, the older actors like, say, Michael Caine... Um, the editors, the sound engineers, they all have chairs. That that was just an anecdote that Anne Hathaway told because she thought it was funny and cute and ended up becoming this weird online drama thing. And we'll include articles in the show notes. But he, it was he provides wheelchairs to all actors. Like, what, what, what are, what are, what are, whether they need them or not. He, yeah, have them on set. Have, have them handy. But, like, uh, you, you got a real sense that it was like, yeah, okay, enough chris like you, you've you've done enough and you're you're now the weird british guy who, who needs to be taken down and then you have the pandemic hit and then you have the situation with tenet where tenet ends up being this kind of weird stalking horse released in cinemas um and you end up with this discourse where and again we've talked about this in the podcast before nolan tends to be a private person he tends not to wade into the discourse on himself that much um, it is perhaps very He's revealing. Definitely aware of it, though. He is aware of it. He is undoubtedly aware of it, and he plays with it. And I think he plays with expectations of it. Uh, but you had situations where it was announced that Tenet was going to be the movie that would open in cinemas once cinemas reopened in the states. So cinemas reopened the states. They suffered because there was no new films to show because all of the studios were either releasing direct to streaming. Uh, like Universal were with, say, Trolls World Tour, uh, or like Warner Brothers were with Scoob, um, or they were holding them back until this year, like Universal were with like F9 and like um, MGM, um, soon to be Amazon Studios, uh, were there, with, with... There were a lot of theaters releasing old movies as well. Yeah, and screening like vintage stuff and like trying to get people to attend. And like you had theater owners who were desperate for material and begging for new material to be released. And it was decided that Tenet would be the movie that would be released in cinemas. And you had this weird discourse thing where it's like Nolan, the, the, the myth behind the scenes was that Nolan was usually pushing for it and that Nolan wanted it released as early as possible and that Nolan like was wanting people to only be able to see this movie in, in theaters. Um, and like it got so bad that you had Nolan himself like issuing statements through his publicist saying, 
no, what what happened is Warner Brothers were always going to release something in theaters. Uh, it was decided the tenant was the one that was least on was least likely to affect any further down the line stuff because it's not tied into any shared universe. But also, of the dates that were offered to me, I picked the latest possible date to open it in theaters. Um, the only choice that I make was to pick the latest one. But you had this weird situation where, like, I personally, as somebody who reviews films, I'm, I'm a film critic. I, I sometimes review films. It's what I do. I was getting, like, messages from random strangers on the internet yelling at me saying that I was complicit in mass murder for encouraging people to go to the cinema. And it was really weird and really intense because, yes, I, I get that. Ten, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to encourage people to go to the cinema when when COVID-19 is around. But the solution to that is to, like, close cinemas, like, make sure you have a robust social security net, create an environment where the people who work in cinemas don't need to go to work in order to continue to live or feed their families, to make sure that the people who operate cinemas do not have to open cinemas in order to, like, avoid losing the lease or the mortgage on them. Those are the solutions to those problems. If you can't do that, then forcing them to open, you need to put stuff in them, I would argue. And also the fact that, like, you have internationally, like, we know people in theatres uh, who operate and work in theatres in the UK and Ireland. And we know, or I know from talking to them, that they were like, the fact that the US is in the situation is with COVID means that there's no new movies being released, which makes it like attendance is way, way down. Um, there's no way if we're opening cinemas in Ireland in or Italy or France in August and September of 2020, and it is reasonably safe to encourage people to go, and, and it was by all accounts, if there are no movies for them to see, they are not going to go and these businesses are going to suffer and collapse. So you had this big urge or this big impulse where it was like, you know, you have to release something, and it it ended up being Tenet, and I would argue better Tenet than something else. Like if if you release, say, Nia DaCosta's Candyman uh, in cinemas and it flopped, that would be the end of her career. Whereas I think Nolan, if you release this and it doesn't perform well, Nolan will at least endure and last. Nolan will get to make another movie because he's Nolan. As opposed to, say, releasing, I, I don't know to pick an example off the top of my head, um, Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman 1984, it opens and it flops. She doesn't get to make another Wonder Woman movie. She doesn't get to make another movie on that level because that's the way that Hollywood works. So I I found myself a little bit anxious about like the, the weird discourse where it's like Christopher Nolan wants people to die because he because this movie is being released in theaters. Um, Who is he? Like Darren Mooney? Yeah, I mean that that kind of monster out there. Um, but I like it. It really did feel like there was kind of a sense of like a humbling being due for like because and you get it and it's this weird thing that's happening in culture in general and you see it like with the you know i'm sure we'll talk about it later things like say that the scarlett johansson lawsuit against disney where you have like people who are really like scarlett johansson isn't she a billionaire what's she doing suing disney for she just wants more money that greedy so and so like what why is she standing up to what poor disney it's just a small conglomerate trying to put food on the table, trying to feed its family, trying to send its kids to a college, you know, not one of them fancy East Coast ones, just like a, a good college where it can learn a vocation. 
And then Scarlett Johansson's rolling up in her Phoenix, Mercedes. University of Phoenix. Yeah, you really, yeah, that sounds like that's a workable one. But, you know, like this weird thing where it's like, you know, we don't want auteurs anymore. We don't want like distinctive visions. What we want is content. What we want is stuff that is, you know, company approved and kind of like, like things like, and again, sorry, this is a, a big rambly thing and it probably isn't like Tenet's not the place to have this conversation, but things like we talked, like we watched Demon Slayer and it's like, yeah, this is just a slab of content. But things like when Spider-Man, so Spider-Man and Sony, and when Disney and Sony were negotiating about like rights over Spider-Man, and Sony were asking for a certain percentage of profit, or they were asking for a certain share of the product or whatever, and Disney said no, and and they called off the negotiation. It was like, okay, Spider-Man won't be in the MCU anymore. And you had this weird moral imperative where it's like, how dare Sony try and stop Spider-Man from being in the MCU? And it's like, no, Disney are not your friends. Like they're they're not like you're, you're they're not a local sports team that you're rooting for. They're this big gigantic company that controls intellectual property and harnesses it for amounts of money that exist beyond the ability of rational people to comprehend. And I just I don't know. I I I found myself with things like the discourse over like Nolan and Tenet being like having an existential, having a mild existential crisis where it's just like, are we that angry that this man wears a scarf and drinks tea and makes movies about time and drowning and, you know, memory and perception? Are we that upset that his movies are his own and that he gets to make them that we're like, no, enough of that now can't we have more blockbusters like jungle cruise or what have you i don't know i found i found my that was kind of like my response to the whole chaos around tenet and the whole cacophony that went on sorry how are you, Andrew? Joining me as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Mooney. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast like the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. <laughs> 